thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Readying the next generation of PJs, also known as Air Force Pararescue, is the job of Tyler Christensen. He's not alone, however. In fact, a team of folks who sees these candidates through the process of training and selection is growing. The reason for that is the value that their expertise brings to the special operations community. Their incredible attention to detail when it comes to overall wellness and performance is a sight to see. From cutting-edge technology to on-hand psychologists, no stone goes unturned when it comes to transforming these high performers. Here it is, episode 455. But, yeah, but Tyler, we met a couple years ago. I was going to say, why didn't Tyler introduce himself, yeah. and then uh, we'll give a special uh, report from our attorneys, and then we'll get rolling. That's right. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm the human performance director at the Special Warfare Training Wing, and there we work with the ground-to-air uh, entities that work within the special operations community, and some connect to the uh, regular line units. And this is for the U.S. Air Force, yeah, based out of Lackland, which correct, is down in San correct. Antonio. Yep. Um, so we got the PJs, uh, your pararescue, you have your combat controllers, your tactical patroller, TACPs, and then also uh, we have the special recon uh, mission. So we, we are the development chain of that. Okay. Well, the special report from our attorney is anything said on this podcast cannot be attributed to the DOD or does not represent the U.S. military in any way. Anything expressed on this podcast is solely the opinion and thoughts of one Tyler Christensen and has no way to reflect upon any government entity. Is that sufficient? I I fact-checked that, and that is correct. Okay, cool. So these are all just, you know, thoughts, ideas, you as a lone individual coming through, rapping with Power Athlete Radio, and regaling us with interesting information, especially probably one of the most advanced human performance facilities and implementations I've ever come across when I had the opportunity to tour Lackland and see what you guys are up to. Uh, my head was actually blown off to it. It's kind of what I always imagined like should be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the high level of testing and like, you know, really looking at people from different ways and trying to maximize every aspect by just not turning up one thing, but looking mm-hmm. at like a, a spectrum and a holistic approach. Yeah. So it, I walked into that situation uh, when I became the director, Chief Smith, who's a PJ, he developed all that. So like Which guy was that? Was that the guy that Josh, kept squinting his eyes? Yeah, yep. Josh yeah. Smith. Great, yeah. great guy. And uh, he's he's got some resources out there. He has to have that touch. But either that or he's really amazing at reading through bullshit. <laughs> and and he's, he's for sure a visionary. Yeah. Uh, he set that up. I walked in and my jaw dropped. And I'm like, holy hell, what? We got this? Um, the problem was he was just at that one spot in our pipeline. We're in five different states, so I have five different facilities. And when we have those five different facilities, what he did at the beginning of our pipeline, it hasn't transitioned through the rest of the pipeline. Well, I mean, like like you said, the guy's a visionary, uh, has extremely uh, like interesting resources and the ability to get a lot done. It would be hard to assume that somebody else who's not him in this facility would be able to replicate this without some massive proof of concept. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, there was faith from leadership, you know, that kind of gave him the top cover to, hey, let's get it done and just, you know, do right. And if we fail, we fail falling forward. And like having that support from your leadership is 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 like the best thing. And then, you know, you fall, but you fall forward and you get lessons learned and you don't make that mistake again. What was the um, 
I remember the one, the, the most impactful thing about the tour was talking about the before and after that, you know, you guys were in this situation where, uh, you know, you were bringing in a bunch of people and the numbers were so low that people were able to pass through the selection and actually get through the training and get into the teams that they were starting to feel like there was this, I don't know, like this vacuum being created almost like, uh, uh, you know, uh, European countries where, you know, uh, intelligent people only have one child. And next thing you know, like 10, you know, 20, 30 years later, all of a sudden they're looking at like a massive population decrease. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, this is happening in, you know, the like northern European countries. And that was kind of how it got likened is like uh, we're seeing the effects of people not getting through the pipeline. And the guys that are, you know, the people that are actively doing the job that need to train these guys are starting to age out of this thing. And we need to be more proactive in getting people to pass. Yeah, they're. They're getting, you know, they're, they're getting older and they're starting to head out. So, yeah, the, the quantity coming in is very important. But also it's the, the, I guess, revolving door effect of you only have so many people to send. So those people just keep going through that revolving door. And that's going to affect family. That's going to affect, you know, health. That's going to affect men mental wellness. It's starting to affect a lot of other things. So... You know, making sure that we have a pipeline, but yet we're not lowering a, a great pipeline, but we're not lowering the standard um, is one of our attributes. So the S aspect that we, excuse me, attributes, speaking of attributes, we have like eight different attributes we try to pull out anywhere from teamwork to drive to, you know, uh, commitment, you know, these different type of things. So these are the things we try to develop with strength and conditioning, with spiritual wellness, psychological wellness you know, nutrition and, uh, sleep recovery, right. All those uh, different things. Yeah. Uh, but, but, well, let's take a step back even further. Um, I'm sure, uh, you know, many people listen to this podcast are familiar with the TACPs and PJs and like what you do in terms of like forward operations for the air force. Mm -hmm. But for the people that are unfamiliar with it, can you give a little bit of like, you know, who these individuals are, what they do, where they support and how they fit into like the spec war kind of, you know, spec ops, community yeah so the the TACPs, they they traditionally attach attached to the the regular army um so if you need bomb support close close uh, air fire things like that they they are responsible for that you have your combat controllers they specialize in kind of uh, uh i don't want to say uh, yeah jtac so essentially the the air to ground uh communications they can set up landing strips things along those lines. Special recon used to be special operation weather. Uh, so that recently changed. Uh, when that changed over, um, the which was... Well, these were the guys who were inspecting the snowflakes, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. just making sure. Yeah. They, they should be. <laughs> uh, but uh, not a lot of people wanted to be in special operation weather, so those numbers are really low. So they re-examined that field and say, okay, what, what else can we give to it? Mm -hmm. uh, so they made it kind of the special recon, so reconnaissance and, and things along those lines. Then you have your PJs. Your PJs are your, your basically your... Para-jumpers, I para, think. Yeah, yeah. yeah para-jumpers and then para-rescue. Para-rescue. Um, they, they, you know, somebody gets hurt, they're there. Well, I think their motto is, uh, we do what we do. Or no, I'm going to mess up this motto. Isn't it like any, anytime, anywhere from any height? <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's so others can live. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so their main thing is is the, those life saving skills. If somebody gets shot, they're the ones you know dropping down and coming in doing the life saving procedures till they get to medical personnel. Um, they're the ones. Uh, I love deadliest catch. 
and you know yeah, those, yeah. those type of shows like they're the ones that are going out and doing those rescues so, so it's not aquaman then yeah well it, i mean it could it be probably is yeah. i mean let's be honest that's so, awesome. Yeah. No, the um, the thing which is so fascinating, especially when we have people that come on their podcast that deal in such like a unique community. I think like the most of the uh, of like the population, the laymen, the people that aren't involved in this deal, don't even know these really exist. I mean, you know, when people think about the Air Force, they think about jets and uh, you know maybe like forward operations in terms of like airborne, but not really realizing that. Uh, you know, there's this whole kind of, you know, a forward aggressor, door kicker, you know, like guys that uh, when you look in the spec air or spec war community are, are well respected. And, and then when people hear like SOCOM or that side of the house, they think of like, you know, CAG or, or you know, uh, Naval Special Warfare, mm-hmm. not realizing that there's all of these other pieces that fit within both like big army, you know, big military versus this kind of spec war side. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's funny you bring that up. Uh, so I was working at the NSCA prior to prior to taking this job. And while I was there, I get a call from Paul Goldberg and he's like, hey, you need to apply for this position. I think you'd be perfect for it. So I look at it and I'm like, GS-14, like that's in the government system that's pretty high up yeah. um, and I'm like you know what I always give the advice never be afraid of a no so I'm like you know what I'm going to throw my name in that hat you it, miss 100% of the shots you don't take which is what I tell my daughter when she's uh, my daughter's nice she plays basketball yeah. so at basketball practice I tell her every time you'd miss 100% of the shots you don't take so go out there shoot the ball have fun yeah. and like you know and I think that's really actually great advice for guys that are going to the bar if you're looking for a model when you go out to try to meet somebody remember you miss 100% of the shots you don't take okay Absolutely. so you take the shot yeah so I take the shot and I ended up getting the position so in the prep or excuse me I ended up getting an interview for the position so in preparation for that i'm trying to do my background work check out with these with this battlefield at the time we were battlefield airmen training group so i'm like digging around the internet and you know like i can find what i want to find on the internet usually i'm pretty good at that stuff but i can't find anything about this organization i also have a vast network within the special operations community calling everybody i know and they're like, well, I know a person there. And it's funny, all those people connected me to the same person. <laughs> so essentially all these people. I knew two, a guy. One two, dude. Two, one, one guy. And uh, so uh, really didn't find anything out. And then their first question out of the gate, like I knew PJs and, you know, who, who they trained. Uh, but that was it. So then in the interview, they're like, all right, so tell us what you know about us. And I'm like, well, I know these four AFSCs, uh, AFSCs like jobs, right? Yeah. Um, I know these four. I think AF- in the Army they call them MOSs, yeah, I think. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, so I was like, I know these four things. Other than that, I'm going to be honest with you. I couldn't find anything online about you. And they're like, respect the honesty. It's like I found three articles about you guys that kind of said the same thing. And they're like, huh, yeah, that's true. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I ended up getting the position. And, and uh, yeah, it was quite, quite interesting. But... We've had a few guys, uh, PJs, TACPs, combat controllers, come through our different programs, and um, it's always a, a very, very small community of individuals. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, like the SEALs obviously have a West Coast team, East Coast teams, and then, you know, they go from Little Creek out to, you know, Damnick and Development Group and this. I mean, there's all these different pieces within it, mm-hmm. and uh, so it, it's pretty, such a small, small community. It's, and uh, where um, are the majority of guys housed in, uh, you know, like I, I know your pipeline in terms of your selection process. You said that you're in Lackland, but are there other uh, selection processes going on at the same time? Yeah. So our initial, we call it kind of our initial course of entry or course of initial entry. 
And with that, essentially, you come to San Antonio, you go through, or you go through basic training, then you go through a preparatory program, prep, that is what you guys saw. After you go to prep, then you go through assessment and selection. This is where they kick you in the nuts for, you know, 14, 14 straight days and, uh, and, and look for these certain attributes. So it's just not mindlessly beating you up. We have intention behind everything that we Ooh, do. So there's method to the madness. There's, there's, there's some, some methods in there. We, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go too yeah. far down that. Like how long, uh, so when they, after they get through basic and then they come to Lackland and, and what was the, the thing that we viewed, what would you call it? The prep course. The prep course. So as, how long is the prep course? Eight weeks. So the prep course is eight weeks. How many people come into that at a time in like a, in when, when what you, are they, like an evolution? When you guys were there, I think we were seeing around a hundred, maybe we're starting to peak around 150. Now we're, it, we're prepared for 250. Wow. So there's a big ramp up. Uh, we've got a recruiting squadron supporting us now. Um, not with us, but it's a supporting element with Air Force recruiting that's dedicated to us. So their their objective is to make that unawareness uh, turn into awareness that, that we have people that are actually aware of what we do. I, I served in as an infantry guy for a while. I never knew this existed. You know, uh, I always joke that that's a little bit like power athlete radio and power athlete. We're like uh, the world's best kept secret because people, they come, they love our stuff. And then you see like uh, I'll, I'll get emails every day from people like, I just found you guys. I'm like, we've been doing this podcast for 450 plus episodes. I mean, this one's 455 and been, you know, teaching programs and been doing this for a long time. And um, it's pretty interesting that sometimes some of the coolest stuff ends up not getting into the spotlight. Like the fact that, um, and I, I only know this because I got an opportunity to go down and hang out and hear it and kind of understand what the demands of the different positions are, but being like, man, this is actually pretty neat. I mean, and I use the word neat in kind of a dorky way, but like a pretty cool uh, job compared to some of the stuff we ran into when we worked with the 18th Airborne Corps where, I mean, I've talked about it before. I mean, some poor guy's job is, uh, I remember, um, frontline generator mechanic. He had to, like, jump in at the Airborne with, like, you know, 50, 75 pounds of, uh, of tools, go in with a gun, and then try to fix the big batteries that are basically shooting the, uh, the, the rockets and, like, you know, in the sand. Like, the guy went through his job. I'm like, that's the single worst job I've ever heard. Yeah. Like, like, it's 100 degrees. you got all these tools, and you're trying to diagnose electrical problems while people are shooting at you. Like, that's a crappy job. Yeah, that wouldn't at least. At least as an infantry guy, we got to shoot back and... <laughs> and uh, reciprocate the violence and not have to worry about something else. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> circuits, usually electrical don't like sand and heat. Yeah, <laughs> and, then, and then throw in a third world energy, well, I guess they're doing batteries, yeah. but... Yeah. Yeah. No. And then you got to like, you know, I mean, are they processing through diesel? I mean, what's driving the motor? It's just, dude, I was like, holy hell, that guy's awesome. What, Tyler, what was your path into the military? Um, essentially, I grew up a poor kid, trailer park. Where? Uh, uh, trash, small town, Denison, Iowa. Who? Oh. I don't know why I threw a country twang on it. Like, we don't. Iowa. I'm from Denison, Iowa. Iowa. <laughs> we don't, they don't talk like where, that. Where's Denison, Iowa? Western side of. Iowa. So Sioux City, Omaha, Des Moines. Okay. Triangulate that. We're right in the middle. Mm. So, yeah. But um, anyways, had no money to go to college, so I joined. Uh, so did eight years infantry. Uh, got my college degree. Where did you go to college? Iowa State University. Iowa State. Nice. Yeah. All right. You guys hear about their football team? 
No, when did they beat about? Texas often? Uh, I, I didn't know like if you guys knew that we beat Texas in Texas. Oh yeah, you know it happened. Well, that's regularly. not surprising. Hey, if we won one game that year, I'm, me being a Texas resident, that made my my yeah, year. Yeah, I but get the it. fact that they finished number ten. What do you think about Texans springing in Sarkeesian? I mean, you're I, a football fan, I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah, yeah. So, I big names. Like, it, you have to institute a culture, in my opinion. Like, you can have the best talent in the world, but if they're not organized, if they're not uh, kind of driven with a culture or, you know, proper direction, you're going to have, like, 11 different all-stars heading in 11 different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he can corral that, and, like, Texas is going to be throwing big money at him. Mm-hmm. So when they throw big money at him, just like uh, was the guy that just left Herman. Herman. Well, uh, if you, if if uh, backers and boosters and the university and whoever it is throw big money, they expect but results. Not number four or five yeah. in the Big Twelve. Yeah, no, they expect <laughs> big wins, and uh, you know, and I also know. So I know Sarkeesian because uh, we played against him in high school. Um, he grew up in my area, and then he went to El Camino, which was the junior. Didn't, didn't you put him in a dumpster? No, I, I got out uh, old school. Oh yeah. No. So the, uh, yeah, that's right. Oh, how did I miss that one? Uh, but yeah, and then he played at El Camino, which, uh, is the junior college kind of in our area like, uh, you know, and then he went on to play at BYU and, and then obviously had his, uh, you know, kind of falling from grace a little bit at USC and that whole deal, but then went on and was the offensive coordinator for Alabama. And like, I mean, dude, I don't know if you watched that game, but it was over within like the first quarter. Yeah. I, I stopped watching a little after halftime. Oh my I, God. I like football, but I, I like, I like watching competitive games, just yes. watching somebody get bludgeoned to death. I'm like, Holy hell. And, uh, yeah. So, and then he comes to Texas and I, I was listening to actually, uh, some of the reports and what he was, you know, came in. He's saying all the right things. Like, my goal is I'm coming here to win. We're going to put up a ton of points. We're going to recruit the right people. And he pretty much what every single person says. Yeah. How many How many years did they give Tom Herman? Three. Three years. Three. And same with uh, Strong. Charlie Strong. It's Charlie Strong. Strong. I liked him. Yeah. I, I liked him. I mean, um, I met Herman, uh, you know, when Cal Dietz came to town, we went there and he was teaching an RPR clinic for those guys. And so we went out and I watched their, uh, their practice, got to wrap with their offensive line coach. And uh, I, but I, I also like Charlie Strong. I thought these were all good coaches. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's really hard because if you think as a, as a college coach, right? Like now he's coming in, he's inheriting two other people's draft classes. So, you know, uh, the guys that Charlie Strong recruited, now those guys are like fourth, fifth year seniors. And then now all these guys are recruited by Herman. And so now he walks in and to give a guy three years is kind of tough. He never even gets a chance to get like his recruits into an active, like Mm -hmm. into a senior uh, upper class role. Yeah. It's, it's tough on the student athletes. It's tough on the, the strength coaches. And that's my bias because hell that, uh, Yancey came in. He's three years. I'm not sure where he's going next. Yeah. Like, where was Yancey at before that? University of Houston. But before that? Oh, Iowa State. Iowa State. Oh, yeah. Cool. I, yeah. I knew that. Yeah. There, there's Tex- University of Texas, even on their Olympic side, has a lot of kids, athletes, co- who are now strength coaches from the Iowa area. Really? Yeah. Van Dyke, one of uh, Dietz's dudes, he was working uh, data with Texas football, but then... Uh, Hootie, Andrea Hootie's down there with the basketball, or, or here, sorry, yeah, with the basketball team, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, Clint, Clint was uh, a track athlete at Iowa State. Now he's strength coach for the Texas track team. Who uh, we're going to link up with him and then go to some some track meets this year. Oh, awesome! I'm, I'm still waiting for. Uh 
our boy in Hootie to hook us up with some uh, women's basketball so I can we, bring my daughter. We So, unfortunately, the women's team, there are no fans allowed I this think, year. I wonder if we could just get a 10-year-old girl in there just to watch. So If you know the right people, you so, can do anything. That's what I'm going with. Uh, my daughter's hilarious. Um, so we just started, like, I, I just put a hoop up a couple months ago, and we started playing. And she's like, I like this. I want to go play. And, uh, like, she she asked me always funny questions. Um, she's like, hey, uh, I want to get some new basketball shoes. I'm like, all right, which one? She's like, which ones would you want when you were 10 years old? And I was like, Air Jordan, uh, number ones. I'm like the red and black, like uh, mids. Like that's ones that I always wanted as a kid. So I go online. They still make them, but they're like four hundred dollars. I'm not getting that. Her feet are gonna grow like a you know in a week. But pretty hilarious. And then uh, she's like, you know, when you played basketball, what did you focus on? I'm like, I just didn't want anybody to score on me, so I like playing defense. And uh, you know, I, I liked getting rebounds, and I wasn't always concerned with shooting as much as I just wanted rebounds and good defense. Really, and that's so, rare. That's rare in a kid. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't like the pressure of, like, having to, like, shoot the ball all the time. So I just wanted to, like, just grab rebounds and, like, battle people, which is funny because I got to go play football and same type of deal. I never really cared about scoring points. I just wanted to battle people. Well, and, offensive line is basically boxing out. Yeah. From uh, the front. Mm. It, <laughs> that's true. And, uh, uh, but so, the, so she goes out there and... Uh, like we worked on a bunch of defense stuff and I was like, Hey, this is how you want to keep the person in front of you. This is how you want to like, you know, we're working on like slide drills and just all these basics. So she goes out there and, uh, it's like tearing people up cause nobody's playing defense. She's like running the court, like down there, like hustling, like getting steals and the whole thing. And she really can't shoot cause she's pretty new and like, you know, doesn't understand it that much. Uh, so other girls who have played more. And, uh, so all of a sudden, like we go like that practice, that first game she starts and like I saw her coach and I'm always like, Hey, make sure you go over and thank your coach, shake his hand and say, thank you coach for donating your time and helping. Um, because that's how you show respect for your coach. Like that's a, a big thing for us. Like growing up, like your coach is do- donating his time, go shake his hand and be polite. Another lo- lost art form. So she walks, so she's the only girl she walks over and she's like, thanks coach shakes his hand. And so I go over and I was like, how'd it go? And he's like, she's the only one who plays defense. She's going to start. He's like, I know I got to like get some other kids to play, but he's like, I'm going to start her and play her as much as I can. He's like, she's the only one who plays defense. Yeah. Did, did you, when you went to the coach, did you like put your arm, your hand around his neck and like squeeze it and say, no, how, uh, how I did it go. Uh, no, it was great. Cause the dude's about my height. And so we walk over and we're like looking eye to eye. And, uh, he's like, uh, do you play much basketball? I'm like, I did. He's like, you play some other sports. I'm like, yeah, played those a little bit more. And then it was funny. He came over and he's like, your daughter told me you played in the NFL for a long time. And it was just kind of funny. Cause, uh, I, I joked with him. I'm like, you know, if I'm this size and, uh, you know, you're like, you're six, six walking around and you didn't play football. It kind of sucks. <laughs> Tyler, what did you play growing up? Football? Uh, I was a, no, I was a small kid, too. So, like, I wrestled. So, like, my freshman year, I wrestled. Well, uh, do Iowa. you have to wrestle in Iowa? I, I think it's kind of a pre ride It's like uh, Texas football. Yeah. Yeah, like, you got to wrestle in Iowa. And, I uh, mean. Basketball in Indiana. Basketball in Indiana. Texas, Texas football, football. Florida football. And maybe Florida swim. I feel like. California uh, is usually basketball and. Uh, well, Long Island or Baltimore, you got to play lacrosse, lacrosse period. Yeah. Minnesota hockey. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, Iowa baseball, too. That's another one. I yeah. mean, the, yeah. the whole field of dreams. Yeah. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. Yeah. I, I, I've never been there. I know a lot of people that went. I have. I, I never went because they're just like, it's just like, eh. So I, when I lived in Kansas City, I drove up. Uh, I, I wanted to go to uh, the Black Hills and go see... Uh, like Deadwood and just kind of like go see the Black Hills and I want to see the Geronimo and also um, uh, what is it uh, Mount Rushmore yeah. 
So I drove up through Iowa. I stopped at a place for the world's biggest ball of yarn. I stopped at um, Field of Dreams and like hit all these funny, like the house, like the corn house, where it was an entire like building built out of corn cobs. So like I, I just hit all of this stuff. And then I went to Deadwood, got a hotel room, uh, allegedly ate in the restaurant that Wild Bill Hickok got shot and killed in. I think they said we ate at the table. I did, Is that the dead man's hand? Yeah, that's a dead man's hand. Much I was on my boots. And uh, got to see the Geronimo Monument and uh, spent like 30 minutes trying to get like the perfect picture of me picking the president's nose like everybody does at, uh, at Mount Rushmore. It's funny. Yeah. Like there's like everybody standing on this wall like doing this and then like some idiots taking a picture. Oh, God, this is. Uh, I, I did that on the Sphinx. Yeah. Ah, oh. yeah, it's what knows? The, yeah, true, true. But, yeah, well, uh, the, and, the area. And, and kissing the Sphinx. Ah, man, um, I have wanted to go see the Sphinx and like the the Great Pyramids and do like there's a uh, National Geographic has a tour through I think it's the University of Cairo uh, for their like Egyptian deal. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, my daughter, who's also plays basketball, uh, my my other daughter rides horses and they both do gymnastics, much stuff. But like she's pretty obsessed with Egypt. Mm -hmm. Um, Like two years ago, we had to do this entire project and I basically was building pyramids for her out of like cardboard. But um uh, there's a pretty cool tour, like through I think it's uh, National Geographic's American Express and like the University of Cairo put on this like amazing tour where you go and you're I guess you like sail down the Nile and I'm like looking at this I'm like God damn it this would be like a lifetime like like an experience of a lifetime to like take the kids and then I was like ah oh, man and then I started looking at all like the vaccines and like things <laughs> like they're like West Nile virus and they went through all of these like different uh, things that you need to be inoculated before you go and I'm like. Ooh, this would be a tough one with all the kids. So maybe when you guys get a little older. Yeah, so I, I was originally there. I did the this multinational force and observer uh, gig. So essentially it was multinations, n- multiple nations sitting in and doing border patrol on the Gaza Strip. Oh, wow. Uh, so when Israel took over the Sinai Peninsula, um, it... it uh, kind of destabilized. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, so essentially they put up a... a world police per se in there and zoned it out so i went over and did that and then uh ended up winning so amongst those uh, those nations that are there we won the force four skills competition and so our reward was going to cairo mm. so went to cairo then and fast forward so that was like 2002 2003 fast forward three four years i did a contracting in iraq and then for vacation I went back there because I loved it so much. So if you go to Cairo, you got to go to Sharm El Sheikh. That's that's the place to be. But uh, while in Cairo, went to the museum, went to did the a little boat ride on the Nile, mm-hmm. and then uh, pyramids and stuff, and did horseback riding to the pyramids. The thing that you don't see a lot of, and I think I have a picture somewhere, right across the street. So typically they take a picture with the desert and looks like it's in the middle of nowhere. No, but if, uh, but the city's right behind it. It's like across the street. It's across the yeah. street. Yeah. yeah. I was sitting in a McDonald's. So I got the McDonald's or not McDonald's uh, pizza hut. So I got a pizza hut logo in the picture and then taking a picture of all that. So man, the aerial photography blows my mind because they just show like this massive, this like city of like sea of people and it's just divided. And then there's like the pyramid and like, you're right. Everybody takes pictures this way and it's all open. But have you been to Dubai? Yeah. Dude. Yeah. yeah, Crazy. I went to pit stop from when we were teaching seminars, pit stop, DC, Dubai, 13 hour layover and then Perth and just 
got out of the airport, ran around, and went to the tallest building in the world, like Tom Cruise, yeah. in one of the Mission Impossibles. But was that the one that uh, Fast and Furious uh, jump the Ferrari uh, out I, of? I stopped watching Fast and Furious after six when Gina Carano was killed, and <sighs> well, uh, but yeah. the. Well, let's, let's, put fast, let's put Fast and Furious to rest. Like, okay. like 455, the death of the fast. Yeah, like okay. Fast Five. The, uh, but the city, Dubai, just stops. Mm-hmm. And then it's nothing. Yeah. It's pretty weird. It's pretty amazing what water does. <laughs> funny, funny story about uh, Dubai. So when I was contracting, it was my main hub in and out of, of Iraq. So first time in Dubai, got a few days. So I'm in this big huge hotel and I'm like all right I'm gonna go out and explore so I took my little backpack and and went out I went by this club and you just hear do 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 blade versus sandstorm and and then so like my I'm like I gotta check this out so I walk into this place right and there's three men standing on the dance floor like walking forward and backwards with their hands and, and waving their hands back back and forth right and then one dude's in the middle shimmying uh, so three guys, one guy in front, and then the guy in front's just shimmying. And so I was like, oh, this is interesting, but I think I'm going to join. But first, I need a drink. So I go to the bar, and I ask for a drink. And the guy's like, we don't sell alcohol here. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, that makes sense. Okay, I figured I just... Unless you're on the 13th floor where Allah can't see you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I was like, ah, okay. So I, I got with the group, did a little shimmy, and then went on my adventure. Get back to my hotel, and then I'm hearing, do, do, do. And I'm like, I got to check this out. So in my hotel, I went in, and everybody's drinking. And I'm like, time out. You can drink in a hotel, and then you can't drink outside the hotel. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I went on an adventure to go you know, have a drink, have, you know, relax, have a little fun. And it's just like down the hall. And there's so many, I don't want to get into it in, in a public forum, but there's other stories that, oh. are, that are like, wait a second, you can get arrested for kissing somebody in public, but you can do this in a hotel? Uh, I was like, yeah, no. Uh, I, I was just like, what the heck? One of our good friends was based out of uh, the Emirates for work, and uh, he was periodically would hit me up with like, can you, like, you're never going to believe this piece of this whole thing. Yeah. And so he would like hit me up and he'd be like, hey, uh, all I can't see past 13 floors. So anything's go. And like, he like just, um, uh, like he went to like this local gym and he's like, dude, I have never in my life. He's like, you know, those miles that bulls, those dudes are in the Emirates. And, uh, just, it was really interesting, like, um, how they viewed stuff. And he would like, you know, at least once a week would be like, check this out. And it's just such a different, uh, different culture. And I think what's always so fascinating, especially here in America, is because, I mean, we know a lot of Americans don't really travel. So they don't have this appreciation for, like, what's happening around the world. And, uh, you know, everybody looks through everything of their lens. And you're like, well, you have to look through their stuff in, in their lens because they don't have our lens. Yeah. And um, I always, that's what I always really appreciated about traveling, especially teaching the seminars, getting the opportunity to go different places. just gives you a, a you know, a... I guess like a, um, like a res- not necessarily a respect, but like more an appreciation for like what you have at home, mm-hmm. but also that not everybody thinks like you. Yeah, no, that's it's absolutely true. Um, you know, you get a lot of people here in the states complaining about a lot of things, and it's like you. Uh, they'll say, "Well, I've I've traveled internationally." And it's like you probably went on some some trip to just kind of give you a little sampling, but you didn't see the full picture, or you just saw what they wanted you to see. Yeah. 
but when you get out in the real world, yeah, we have it nice here. Yeah. We have it really nice. Oh, I mean, uh, you know, we spent almost a month in Brazil and, you know, we're in Bahia and all the way down to Florinopolis and like just seeing like such an interesting culture. Like Brazil was so cool, but it was, uh, it's really like a haves and have nots. You're either like, you know, panhandling on the street or driving around in an armored car. Like there's no middle. It's either you're like uber rich or this. And it was pretty fascinating to see. And um and just some amazing beaches, so it was cool. Yeah, yeah. The world's an interesting place. Okay, so so, so yeah, you. Yeah, what? Oh, I yeah. want to get to the yeah, we should what, did from like first. To well, I, you know, that's, that's the like that's like the it. beauty of Power Athlete Radio, yeah. where we just go down rabbit holes. Yes. Like we know we're going to talk about strength conditioning. You know, I'm super fascinated by you know not only how what's it called the prep course goes down and all the different modalities that you guys are implementing, which like. The one that blew my mind was the sheets. Um, so I want to get yeah. into all that. But I, Let's, but, but we we'll, always put time available to go down rabbit holes. Yeah. And then you know what? We got to bring it on back. Then... Let's bring it back to the Iowa State, which when we went off for however many minutes, the what did you study there? And then how did you get to the NSCA? Uh, yeah, so I studied exercise science. Uh, as soon as I've, I finished that degree, worked with Iowa State, Illinois State, and then uh, took the contracting gig over in uh, Iraq. Came back from that, and again, it goes back to my philosophy. is like, I, I, I applied for a job with the Colorado Rockies, and I'm like, ah, I don't really have any experience. You know, can I do this? I don't, I don't have any experience working in baseball. So I was like, eh, tried out, or sent in the resume, ended up getting a gig. Now I know Brian Jordan. So it's Brad Andrus and Brian Jordan that were the, the head people um, in the organization at that time. And I know Brian Jordan now, and I talk to him all the time, and I'm like, Brian, why the hell did you hire me? I was like, I had no experience. He's like, dude, you came from Iraq. Of course I'm going to hire you. <laughs> you know. And, and but it, anyways, that kind of helped out. Well, in the off season, I was, gonna, I was looking forward to taking the AAA position in Colorado Springs. Um, and so I moved to Colorado Springs during the off season, and I took an internship during that off season at the NSCA. And that's kind of, I know tactical strength and conditioning, in a sense, has been around for a very, very, very long time. But for NSCA stance, that's when it kicked off for them. And so I was an intern at that time working with Mark Stevenson, Jay Dawes, some of those guys in the birth of it. So um, I decided to make a sharp right-hand turn and went down the tactical route. Well, at that time, there were no tactical jobs. So I ended up uh, taking a position at the Army Physical Fitness Research Institute, being an exercise physiologist for them. And essentially, I just regurgitated a research protocol. I'm telling you, after a 1,000 of those in a year, I was sitting there, like not literally, but I was, I was ready to let it where, uh, where was this based out of? Uh, the, the main one is at the War College in okay. Carlisle Barracks, yeah. but I worked at uh, Leavenworth. Mm. Um, and so they had the Commanded General Staff College there, basically majors uh, looking to become lieutenant colonels. That's the schooling they go through. Mm. So got all these majors who just think they're hilarious. I'm doing a, we're doing a treadmill protocol at this time, and there's always that point where you have to pause your speech. Okay, say your corny joke. Okay, there it is. And you continue on with your, your regurgitation. And I was, I was at my wit's end. I was like, I made the wrong decision. Right at that time, the NSCA, Mark Stevenson, calls back, and he's like, hey, we're expanding. Uh, I'm leaving. That's when he went out to Virginia Beach. 
and Rob Rogers took over the position, and then I came in as a coordinator. Oh, wow. So that was, that was my first iteration at the end, or my second, technically, because I had the internship and then uh, that position as a coordinator. And, uh, and then, so you guys have been to the TSAC annual training? Yeah. Tactical we, annual training? Like, yeah, been to both the conference, and then we, we sat through one of, your, one of your days during the week. Okay. Um, so the very first one we had was in Las Vegas at the M Resort. Vegas. And it was so funny. Vegas. It, it, people are, like, there's probably less, less than 100 of us. Less than a hundred people at that conference. Like I'd say, it's like sixty. Four people showed up to hear you speak. Yeah, and then uh, so we show up, and then what's going on behind the scenes is we're like we're completely unorganized. Like I'm running around Las Vegas in a rental car trying to find equipment for the hands-on session and like all that type of stuff. And it's just amazing to see where it's grown to now. Um, so, anyways, uh, ended up leaving the NSCA to get take a position with a special mission in the DC area. Worked there for a few years. And uh, it was, it, I loved the organization I was working for. It was just, this is probably the time in my life when I realized you need to look at cost of living. Yeah. Moving from Colorado at the time to DC, and you're like, oh, it's $60,000 in DC. That's awesome. And then reality sits in, and then I'm like, I'm making Twenty-seven, thirty thousand dollars. You know, yeah. it's like uh, I made, I messed up. But, anyways, but, uh, but I found a different position with Seventh Group Special Forces down in Florida. Worked with them until 2014, and then they had that huge government layoff that that took place, and so I was kicked to the curb. And luckily, I ended up back on my feet at the NSCA, managing the TSAC program. Mm -hmm. And then while I was there, developed the the practitioner course. Um, it's um, the fundamentals of strength and conditioning for tactical people. Uh, you guys, yeah, you guys, yeah. Were, you guys showed up to the one we did in uh, up in um, the hood. Yeah, hood, Fort hood. hood. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it was great. We uh, it was hilarious. Like, uh, you know, we've coached so many seminars. As soon as it started going, we were like, let's just jump right in and coach. Let's uh, have some fun. Yeah, 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 it was fun. Yeah, yeah. I tried try getting you guys involved right away, and you're like, I think you guys are kind of filling it out, seeing what's going on, and. Oh, no, like you that. don't really have to. We, we were just like, no, no, okay, yeah, we're in. Oh. <laughs> and the, the way that that room in particular was set up, uh, I mean, y'all were spread so thin just because it was that long rack. Mm -hmm. And we were just, oh, we'll take this half of the room. Yeah. That's, oh. that's one of the, the sad thing is, like, that wasn't, uh, like, how many kids do they have? They have thousands. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's probably their biggest space. And that's yeah, why that's we insane. ended up with it. Like, that's probably Fort Hood's best uh, performance facility that they have. I mean, in Fort Hood's one of the largest military bases. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, so. that, uh, I, I, I know that they're, you know, the army has uh, instituted a program up there and I, I'm totally forgetting the name of it. Um, the H2F? Yeah, the H2F stuff. Yeah. And I know uh, God, um, one of Span's buddies, Jay, who, who I met, is the guy kind of heading that up and I cannot remember his last name. So I'll have to text Span on that one. But yeah, the H2F initiative. Yeah, yeah that H2F is talking to Tex about this earlier. Like two to or three years ago when I left the NSCA, I did the social media, hey, I'm resigning, you know, thank you for letting me serve the community type of, of thing. The closing of that that statement was mark my words, in two to three years, tactical strength and conditioning, not necessarily the NSCA program, but tactical strength and conditioning is gonna change the industry. 
And here we are three years later. Mm-hmm. That H2F initiative, how many coaches are they going to hire? Yeah, a ton. A ton. Like we, I used to say our, our industry is saturated. I think that's going to change in the next couple of years, or you, in, in this year, 2021. Well, I mean, the only thing which is kind of throwing a little bit of a funny curveball at it is uh, the Army suspended their new ACFT. They, they did suspend it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I just got that. I uh, saw that last week that, um, uh, like, it was at the Secretary of Defense basically came in and was like, oh, you know, we don't have equipment now, and basically suspended it. So it's pretty interesting that, you know, that initiative comes down with the idea that, hey, we're going to get the tail to wag the dog mm-hmm. and uh, try to push everybody in this direction. And then, uh, you know, sending that initiative without thinking through the equipment, the requirements, how they were going to do it. And I think they just figured. nightmare. Oh, well, I mean, you have people all over the world. I mean, you're yeah. what are you airdropping equipment down to Honduras? I mean, you're pushing stuff here and here, and then you have to figure standardization. You have to educate uh, not only the soldier coaches or the coaches or whoever it is to be able to score the test and the, requ- the equipment. It was definitely all of that could have been fixed if they just did one thing. Oh. Simplified it? No, put pull ups in. Pull ups? Yeah. If they would have kept the run, push up, and uh, ditch the sit up, just do like a, a push up, pull up, run you'd probably fix a lot of these problems. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to say an unpopular opinion. Typically you get, like, the PT test tells you who can and cannot do a job, right? I, in 10 years' time, want to challenge that status quo in the aspect it's, it should be looked at with multiple data points and not just your physical data. I've seen fat pieces like in a training environment, people that are think are pieces of crap. When crap hits the fan, can we cuss on here? Like, yeah, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, fuck you. Just get it out. I'm like, shit, crap. Uh, when shit hits the fan, like all of a sudden you're like, all right, all right, get it. You're like, yeah, good. Um, but. According, well, uh, according to the physical But that's like standard. everything. Like, I mean, the, the NFL does the same thing. I mean, they have combines and, like, you know, they have all this physical testing that has nothing to do with your ability to play the game, but right. yet these are the metrics that they use for success. Yep. You know? So, it, like, right now um, within our organization, we're going to start doing a physiological profile assessment. With that, we're just looking for the qualities of strength, muscular endurance, uh, aerobic, anaerobic, I'm missing one. Oh, it's because I had uh, upper body and lower body strength. So how uh, how do you measure those? I mean, those are obviously markers. And I and I, I actually was in a conversation yesterday with uh, one of our guys who's uh, um, you know at Fort Bragg, kind of on the uh, uh, you know spec war side, and. Uh, he was like, or he asked me, he was like, you know, what do you think on like uh, performance, like baselines for like aerobic, you know, like, mm-hmm. he, you know, we, we have them for strength, but what about like aerobic capacity? And I always just assume that like selection and being able to do your job should be the greatest feedback for your, you know, not only aerobic, but you know, your physicality, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, I mean, through that physical culture, can you could do the job? Are you able to survive the demands of what's required of you? And uh, it's pretty interesting where, like you said, maybe the, this individual, maybe not on paper, but yet has this ability to do this better than somebody else that might have it on paper. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've seen people who think they're little football stars, but they peaked in high school in the aspect like they're strong, they're fast, they're, you know, they've got those attributes, but they also have two left hands. Yeah. Right. Right. 
So essentially what I'm looking at, so again... Do you remember the movie Necessary, Rough, uh, Necessary Roughness? I remember it, but I'm... So they Kathy have, Ireland? Kathy Ireland was, was the kicker. Uh, oh, yeah. but, but in it, there's um, this dude who's like a you know, 110 hurdler, and uh, <laughs> his name's like a Stonehill or something, and like they go out and he runs the ball, and he goes to catch it, and the ball just like hits him in the face, and so the nickname, they just call him like, Stonehands! Don't throw it to Stonehands! It's, yeah, right. that's basically what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... With that, with yes, about the test. ACFT, what, what I think was the part of the biggest problem, and yes, pull-ups, uh, essentially, too. Trap or deadlift? Um, well, no, it's a logistical nightmare. Yeah. Like, they've got thousands and thousands of people to go through it. So with setting up our test, I wanted it not to be a logistical nightmare. I wanted it to be easy to implement. Okay, here in the early stages, we're not calling it a test. We're calling it an assessment. So it's just an assessment, and it's going to be blended into the workout, the beginning of the workout. But they they don't have to do it all in one day. So, like, if they're working out three to four times that week, just knock it out in that week uh, at the beginning of the workout. And, yes, there's residuals, and, yes, there's there's other things from the previous training that, that can go into play. But, again, I don't want to impede on training because I don't want to constantly test just to test. Sure. Right? Okay, so, and with that, that said... But isn't that a change in culture? I mean, uh, doesn't it, the military love to test things? Yes, but that's why this is an assessment. Mm, okay. okay, I so, like it. Ooh. So, uh, Semantics. Even in, our, even in our, our meetings with leadership, it's, it's, it's an assessment. It's an assessment. It's an assessment. Because test carries big words within in the community. Um, so within that, the other thing with the logistical part is, okay, I fully recognize that a jump a force plate can tell me you know more about your force production than a broad jump but there's equipment involved or even a vertex right for a vertical jump there's equipment that's cumbersome that slows down the process where all I need to do is throw out a measuring tape broad jump right so we have broad jump then we have uh, trap bar deadlift pull-ups push-ups um, Anaerobic, we went with the 300 right now, 300 mm. yard shuttle. And then. Are you doing uh, 650s or 560s? Five, five, six, well, 650s. 650s. Yeah. Uh, Which is worse. Yeah. I think it's way worse. Change of direction. Yeah. I, I, we, we, we did it both ways, and uh, it was dramatic. Well, I can't say there's nothing dramatic about that other than the fact that it's awful. Uh, but yeah, the 650s was tougher than the 560s. And I remember in college, we totally like, uh, hey, can we do this 560s? Because we knew it was less turns, yeah. you know, because the turns are where you get smoked. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and then the last one for the aerobic compete capabilities we're doing the beep test mm. Mm. Um, again it's all of it's just simple to implement the most cumbersome piece of equipment is the trap, trap bar. bar but how else are you going to get that yeah. like that lower body strength it's needed well uh, and what i like about the trap bar is that the handles are neutral into the body so the mm -hmm. position is more similar to a just barbell back squat, squat yep. yes and but it depends but, on how you pull yeah yeah i mean yeah. but but for the most part like unless you're kind of pulling it like a traditional but like we found the easiest way was really just center the body center the gravity and be able mm -hmm. to pull in that position yep. and it takes away you know trying to get the bar around the knees which seems to cause people wild fits of amnesia like I, I always laugh like man for some reason like the bar going around the knees like the bar has to go in a straight line so you got to get your knees out of the way like it yeah. seems so basic but man people get into some amnesia yeah. with that that's that's actually one of my like my coaching skills especially nsca i coach very little now I'm a straight up desk jockey that saves the world one email at a time, like type thing. <laughs> You're fighting wars one yeah. email at a time. Yeah. 
so I, I just sit at a desk. So like my coaching skills are declining. Like, you know, you don't use it, you lose it, right? And they are declining, but that's why I have so many experts working, you know, for me. So uh, are, are you are you are you actually on the floor working with guys? No. So I, you're in more of like a, a yeah. like an overseeing admin role. Yeah. So it's more policy procedure, getting systems in place, because again, we got we get uh, what I say five different gyms across the United States. We got to, uh-huh. and, and then on top of that, you know, we have not only strength coaches, we have AT, PT, OT, psychs, dietitian, uh, missing one, I miss. Anyways, we, and then various techs of those positions. So we have like an octopus moving, right? All these different arms moving in different directions, but unless they're working together, it's like, what are you doing? Uh, so we have to make sure everybody, all these different arms and assets that we have are working integrated together and that we're heading in the same direction. Also, we have to make sure that, you know, if let's say we have power athlete in six different states, you know, you wouldn't want, if, if you had like a progression, like you have level one, I think you guys have one or two, how many levels do you have right now? Block one. Yeah, block one. Yeah, block one. Okay. Let's say you got block two, three, four, and five that are being de- done across the United States. So let's say that's the progression of our pipeline, right? We got to make sure that the same words are coming out for con- you know continuity and not confusing the student. Mm-hmm. Right. We have to ensure we have a progressive education system in that we get our intent across. Additionally, we got to make sure our coaches are saying the same words. We got to make sure our coaches have, I believe, in freedom of, of training. And, you know, like you have your style, you have your style. And it, but they're grounded in the same principles. Right. So we have to make sure that's all done across our pipeline. So the, the essentially we, we went from a mom and pop shop of just being the Battlefield Airman Training Group, and now what's going on at, at PrEP, we've got to expand across in a con- constant and, and progressive uh, pattern. So in that, that's my job, is mm. to try to make that continuity, that standardization, but yet giving people the freedom of movement uh, to do that. So Is this why you were the 2019 Tactical Practitioner of the Year versus Coach? <sighs> <laughs> the crowd goes wild. Yeah. And the crowd from Iowa. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think some of the, the other initiatives, you know, getting the uh, uh, practitioner course up and running. I uh, started the initiative on the POTIF, on the POTIF contract. Yeah, so I want to get back to the, the origins of that. It is a, important because you're training the trainer. You're educating the guys mm-hmm. that got to lead the PT on the ground. And their base level of knowledge on fitness, is, as we know very well, is very minimal. Right. Maybe they played high school sports. Maybe they didn't. So now where was the – man, talk to us about that development of that course. Yeah. That, that was, <laughs> you mean on the POTIP initiative? What, where it, where it, was the origin? It yeah. ended up uh, getting integrated into the, the POTIP yeah. initiative. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple different things on this. Forcecom originally started – uh, so we'll link up with Forcecom, but let me back up before yeah. we get there. So when I came from, um, well, all right, when I started working with 10th Group Special Forces, we had mornings where guys would show up or they would not show up. So I'd come in and we'd have two people on Monday. And then on Tuesday, I have 100 plus people I have to train. So it kind of got me really good shooting from the hip. And then I started kind of getting a battle, battle rhythm. But then when we had a new person join the program, that took one of my coaches out of play. 
So then I was like, okay, we got to fix this, but how? So I just recognized the problem there. Then I left shortly after and went to the special mission unit. And uh, so out in D.C., and I say, I ran into the same problem. I was like, I got to fix this, but how? And I was like, uh, education. So I set up an education program. I was at one location and then uh, set up an education program. And then they're like, wait, stop. We're pulling you from here and we're moving you to our schoolhouse. And you're going to implement an education system there too. So, which makes sense because these new people coming into the organization are getting assessed to come into the organization. We need to give them the fundamental knowledge. Now, you know, in due time, that teaching that new person is no longer an issue. So developed an education system. Then seventh group called and said, hey, we got a position. You interested? And I heard you doing some education stuff up there. It's like, yep. So I went down to seventh group, and then I expanded on it more. Then, again, I got laid off, but then I went to the NSCA. The NSCA originally had a facilitator's course in place. This facilitator's course was taught by the NSCA. You know, so Nate, myself, we go out and we teach that course. Saying Nate and I work together. We wouldn't let you come in and teach it or you come in and teach it, right? We had to be NSCA personnel. So they're very possessive with it. I hated that model because when I'm away from the desk, shit's not getting done. Mm. And that means it goes stagnant, and then I come back to nothing but work, and everything's stacking up, right? Yeah, piles up. Yeah, so looked at this, this content of the course. We're teaching Krebs cycle, mm. and then we're teaching how to squat. And I'm like, what the hell are we doing here? It's well, like, I'm trying to do a little bit of everything. Yeah, and, and that's, that's part of it is they didn't have a, a kind of direct intent behind the facilitator's course. And I can't point the finger at anybody because I don't have three fingers pointing back at myself, right? Because I delivered that course before, and I just knew that we wanted other people to teach it. Well, it, is it, isn't there always this idea, and we, we've run into this for years, of like as you get farther along on your journey, there's more complexity. And I think you honestly always have to go back and look at like, hey, this is the way we were doing it. If we need to scale this, how do we simplify it in such a way that we can continue to push it out? And I think, um, you know, as we go farther along to keep our interest, we have to get into this more granular level. But you have to remember people coming in the pipeline, they don't need to know about the Krebs cycle. I mean, uh, you know, and like that's kind of a little bit of high level. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, we found that the majority of time needs to be taught in the execution and more importantly, teaching people the standard of what they're trying to achieve, finding creative ways to get them to execute this stuff. And like, you know, at the end of the day, I'd be more happy with somebody being able to pull a trap bar off the ground better then understand that, you know, this is how Krebs cycle works into it, and this is where carbohydrates and everything get turned I, into energy. I don't remember the last time I used Krebs cycle, to be honest. The last time I used a Krebs cycle was in Texas' case when yeah. he actually ate too much liver and was having vitamin A toxicity issues where he was <laughs> uh, ketogenic without even trying to be ketogenic and still eating carbs just because of the vitamin A, which was hilarious. Oh, yeah. And uh, as we're looking at his Krebs cycle, I was like, man, I haven't looked at this little diagram with the circles in a while. Yeah. And has no practical application towards teaching people to pull a trap bar off the ground. Right. So what the NSCA, in, in the best intent in the world, what the NSCA was trying to do was service everybody at once, mm. right? When, when I came in, I made my priority the new and incoming individuals, and it wasn't the new and incoming coaches 
It was the new and incoming tactical professional military police fire, or you guys call them war fighters, mm-hmm. right? Well, uh, I got so tired of like tactical athlete and like just these like I like I I. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we do a lot of work on the internet, shocker. Mm-hmm. But, like, I see all this kind of stuff, and, like, people start globbing on to these terms. Mm-hmm. And then what they do is they just beat it like a dead horse where it's like a tactical athlete. These are the tactical athlete sandbells. These are the tactic, you know. And so when I, uh, we had Karen Kelly, who's from the, the Warfighter um, uh, what is it? It's not the Warfighter Initiative, but the Warfighter uh, Training, yeah, like a yeah, research center. West Coast in, Coronado. Yeah, in, in Coronado. Okay. And as she was talking about, like, those that go in harm's way and warfighters. I was like, man, that's a, I like that term better because it, it uh, it's not tactical. Because as soon as I hear the word tactical, I think of, like, 511 uh, button downs, uh, you know, uh, cargo pants, and, you know, some dude who, like, you're like, you're either a uh, a cop or or a, or like want to look like a contractor in Afghanistan, a, lar- a larper, uh, yeah, a larper. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, like the uh, it's just kind of turned into this. Like, I, I don't know, it, but yeah, the the warfighter, and then I also like the term door kicker, yeah. just because a lot of guys like like if if somebody is having to forcibly enter a door, it's mm-hmm. usually because there's a fire or something bad's happening on the other side. Yeah. So when I looked at the hammer program, I was like. Uh, Warfighters and door kickers. Yeah. So when in 2014, when I showed in, I I changed it from because they were beating up tactical athlete. I changed it to tactical professional. Mm. Um, and I changed it because when I was in DC, in DC, the the special mission unit I worked for had some of the best computer people you will ever know, and then door kickers, right? And so I'm teaching and I'm talking about an athlete. You know, if you're athletic, you got to, you know, hit your angles like this and do a crossover and, you know, all that nerdy stuff. And then finally this, this one guy, he just raises his hand. He's like, listen, I've never been an athlete, nor do I want to be an athlete. And I'm like, fair enough. That makes sense. All right, you got kids, you got a dog. Let's change the wording on this and so that they can relate to it, sure. right? So one of the, my big, you know, I wouldn't say big. is a quick little change, but I just called it t- tactical professional. Um, so it could be more encompassing from that wellness to performance because, I mean, if we look at that, that's how I look at the paradigm or the continuum within strength and conditioning of wellness to performance. Uh, the wellness side of the spectrum, that could be your senior leaders. Do they need to be able to pack on 60 pounds and do Mount Everest and, like, well, all this cool kid shit? That's the interesting thing we found about fitness in that uh, when we looked at fitness, fitness was ultra-personal. So the idea that fitness is this uh, thing that can be measured is very interesting. Uh, when we looked at it and said, hey, you know, like if the guy's on this side of the house, what does his level of fitness need to look like? How, you know, what does he need to be able to do opposed from this? And then trying mm-hmm. to tell everybody they need to do the same thing, it seems insane to me. Yeah. And, and so it's recognizing that. And then you got the fitness aspect. That's, you know, the people load bombs and people that, uh, you know, kind of more active type of positions, but not are are not in maybe a a highly dynamic environment that the variables are always changing that you need to be able to react on a dime in, in the what if moments, right? And that's kind of where that performance arm I see I see that being. Um, actually, I'm writing a white paper where actually uh, we got some high big names in this paper, but we're going to define uh, what human performance is within the DOD. Because what, what I see happening now is we have wellness and fitness initiatives in, in and they're saying, like, uh, well, you just use a dietitian as an example. Dietitian for the regular army 
Are they selling you, hey, you need multiple meals a day. You need to constantly, we need to get you an extra meal card. Like, we need to increase this, this, this. You need more carbs, you know, that type of stuff. Or are they saying, hey, you need to go for a walk there, Tubby. Hey, you need to, yeah. to push the plate away, right? But they're, they're advertising it as performance nutrition. And it's like, no, that's kind of more of a wellness, fitness, you know, kind of on that end of the paradigm. So for us, like, we're fighting for meal cards for these people. We're, we're fighting so that they don't burn so many calories that they start to lose weight, that we can still kind of build that mass, that foundation underneath them. So that's performance nutrition. We're, mm-hmm. we, we have to work more in that realm. And I think that as this initiative starts to grow, that that definition of performance needs to be the line in the sand saying this is performance. We need to clean up our terminology. It could be for a colonel. You're the incoming colonel. Okay. You came from damn you. You came from a, uh, a regular army unit type thing, and you're working with supply personnel. You had a performance team there. Now you come to you know an active line unit, door kickers, right? And now you have a performance team. What are your expectations coming from where you are to where you are now? You know, that's the thing that's always interesting, too, on the Army is how they rotate jobs every two years. And I, I think it's great just for, uh, you know, to avoid burnout and to try to get people constantly challenging them so people don't get stuck in these roles. But also, it's pretty interesting how they move chess pieces around and they put people in roles like, hey, I was in supply. Now, all of a sudden, I'm working with, uh, you know, frontline guys. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, it pushes people outside their comfort zone if that's what they want. But I also think you need some inherent understanding of, like, the demands of these individuals. I mean, just like when we went in and worked all that stuff with the 18th Airborne Corps, my first comment, and whenever I talk to people, is like, what do you do? What's the demand? What are we training for? Like, like what does your ideal situation look like? Mm-hmm. And then where are you and how do we move towards it? I mean, there's no one size fits all. But the problem is, is how do you get design an individualized approach for something as big as the U.S. military? Mm-hmm. That. If somebody had the 100% answer to that, they'd probably make millions. Um, you know, be, but within the strength and conditioning industry, it depends is the answer. Hence, we need smart people at the ground level to make those decisions, those educated decisions. Um, and that's, that's why you know, the people that I'm hiring within our organization, you know, like, yeah, we got a lot of uh, technology and stuff like that. But I don't want that technology to tell my coaches what to, to do. I want that technology to inform their decision and them to use the, their brain to figure out the solution um, and then make sure that we have a plan in place and stuff like that. Um, and we went down a rabbit hole. Again. Well, um, dude, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to pull you back. I want to get into some of the modalities and things that you guys are testing in the prep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I got the opportunity to tour it. And to this day, I've, I've whenever we've gone and worked with any um, – you know, forward operating unit or any, you know, warfighter door kickers, I always talk about like, man, uh, some of the things that I saw there, I would have never imagined would have been implemented. But can you get into a few of those things? Remember, we walked in and they were doing, um, what was it? It was uh, Sparta science mm-hmm. and like uh, physical assessments. There were multiple cameras and then went through the whole thing. But yeah, in, in our initial process, yeah, we have the uh, Sparta, we have Dari, uh, we have Bob Pod, we have a DEXA. Yep. Um, that's that's coming soon. We haven't fully implemented. We got to get some uh, legal stuff or red tape stuff out of the way. Uh, we have the capability to do VO twos, pod pod, uh, and then in body as well. So if the in body seems off, if it seems high, if it seems too low, then we'll 
will move uh, to a higher standard. Uh, but from what, what's the embody? Is that the, the body count? Uh, Electroimpedance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, you hold on to the little little sensors and you stand on a plate and then it tells you your body fat and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's the uh, is it bioimpedance? Bioimpedance. Yeah. yeah what bio is, what did I say? Electro. Yeah. Yeah. But that's clearly what I meant. Yes, clearly. <laughs> Roger, uh, Roger. So that's that's in our end processing, and then um, uh, of course they have their fitness test. They'll be what's wearing, their fitness test? Uh, it's the, Originally, when they first enter, it's the pass test, which is push-up, sit-up, like your standard yeah, yeah. standard uh, test. Then they have the OFT, which the test I talked about earlier, those five tests, or four out of the five, so not the beep test, are in there with a ruck, with a, I believe there's a carry, and then there's a uh, swim as well. Hmm. And again, I, th I think it, it I, I know the people that, that designed it, best intent in the world, uh, great people. Uh, and it, we discussed everything, but the aspect of uh, um, so what I'm saying here is has been an open discussion between us. Uh, the aspect that doing a 300 and jumping in the pool, I had certain concerns about cramping. Um, if if you're running that 300 hard, you'll probably be. Are you, are you, uh, is it just one 300? Two. Two. Uh, what's the rest in between? Uh, Three to five minutes. Five. Yeah. Yeah. Five minutes. And then on the front side, and this this one I will admit I was wrong on. I was like, why the hell are you rucking on the front side of a PT test? And they said, for a simulation of going into battle. Mm. And it's like, Man, uh, it, it is what it is. And But I was like, well, that's going to impede on the test. It ended up, because it has to stay at a slow pace, it ended up being kind of uh, a uh, deep muscle stimulation, per se, mm. in the aspect like people were PRing on their, their broad jump. Mm. Mm. And I was like, that's, that was my... Uh, you know, that's actually that um, pretty... Uh, I remember Doc Inklin on and I talked about this, that they had tested where they had seen people do like 45 minutes of aerobic work mm -hmm. before going in and like lifting weights and actually having some really good effects. Um, you know, Louis Simmons has talked about the idea of doing a bunch of GPP work and then going in and setting PRs. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, there's a lot of... What's the right word? Proverbial boogeymen in the strength and conditioning world. There's these like, you know, rules that, you know, cardio will destroy your gains. Mm -hmm. z, z, z. Uh, but we know that's not the case. We know that a more efficient, um, you know, central nervous system and more efficient aerobic system will pay big dividends in terms of putting on muscle. Yeah. And that, it, you know, if you're in shape to do the tasks, you know, like, hey, if I'm in such poor physical shape that I can only do like one heavy rep every you know, seven days, then how much work can I really get done? So I yeah. think that, uh, you know, uh, I wrote an article years ago, which text can link up called, do I have to be in shape where a guy was like, how good a shape do I need to be in? And I'm like, you have to be in good enough shape to survive your training. You have to have a high enough level of GPP, enough capacity that I am able to do what needs to be done with repeated efforts. Let's say I kick the door and it doesn't come mm -hmm. off the hinge. I might have to kick this motherfucker a few more times or what happens? I get to another door that's bigger. You know, or, um, you know, I get in there and I, you know, fight your way in and then you got to drag somebody out or drag somebody out again. And so I think there's, uh, you know, we put such a, um, like, we put so much emphasis on strength because, I mean, obviously, you know, stronger people are harder to kill and strength is easily measured in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like, you know who's strong and who's not. But I think that there's an interesting point, like you said, digging them into a hole, you know, making them go on a long ruck and putting them in a hole. So then they come in, it simulates that in a good way. And, um, and then you saw that it paid some interesting dividends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, where was I going? Nobody knows. Okay. Me either. Uh, <laughs> but, okay. So through our process, um, also the students wear Zephyr 
pucks. So we're getting ground reaction forces. We're getting, uh, and this isn't in a testing environment. This is whenever they move from dawn to dusk, they have this stuff on. Is it a, is it a... Zephyr is a GPS. That's right. Uh, but doesn't it also measure like how much water they were drinking? Like, isn't there a deal where like they go and if they get water out of the machine, it tell, it like attracts... We're, we're not there yet. That, oh. that was a, a future that, ah. that you'd have an RFI yeah. uh, band. And then when you go to get something to drink, you swipe it, you fill up, it marks it. We also want to potentially get to, and there's been discussions with, with Google, I believe it's Google or Microsoft, one of those big organizations, um, that we want to, when you get a plate at the defect, you put it underneath the camera, RF, RFI, takes a picture, and then when you go to dump your plate, before you dump it, you take RFI, uh, you take a picture of your plate and it estimates the calories that you consumed. Wow. And then you dump your plate and then get the hell out of our... Is all this information, I mean, it's obviously going somewhere. Is mm-hmm. there a team of people in a room analyzing and looking at this in real time? So in it goes into Smartabase. Yeah. Every, everything that we have, we don't want uh, the aspect of having to manually input data. So we, we use an API don't ask me what sure. it stands for. I, I imagine it's automatic pull of information. That's the words I made up. Sounds right. Uh, yeah. You so, know, I'm not going to argue right. with you. Okay. But uh, we make sure that that, so that gets pulled into Smartabase. And with Smartabase, we set up profiles, So, but we start down at the micro level. So text, we've got your profile, and we're tracking these things within you. Now we open it up, and now we've done one on you, we've done one, and now we have a team profile. Sure. And then once you have a team profile, you can look at a cohort, like everybody in our pipeline in the same uh, job as you, so we can kind of compare apples and apples. Then on top of that, now we can take it to the next level and just look at the Hall of Fame, who's been here, who's been successful, and how do you rank amongst them. Do you, do you actually do any physical, like uh, um, like any blood work or any type of like uh, hormone, uh, gut, um, you know, inflammation? Is there any type of testing that guys go through before and maybe mid? Like, I've, has it gone to that level too? I, I will say that it was touched upon, and then there's a bunch of legal things inside there. And sometimes when you don't want to know the answer, you, you don't want to dig for it. Mm. Um, it's... We'll, we'll just kind of leave that one there. So, and I mean, and the, but uh, for uh, like for me personally, uh, um, you know, I, it was interesting. I was on the phone with Doc Inkledon, who's uh, uh, you know from Cosenta, human performance specialist. Doc Inkledon and I met like in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. and I, I get blood and do testing with him twice a year. And so uh, we have seventeen years of labs on me, mm-hmm. and so we had like a three hour t- you know console because I just got some stuff done when we were out there in uh, around Thanksgiving. And going through all this like medical history, like all this testing and looking at it, like a test is just a snapshot in time. But Mm -hmm. when you can create this history and like, he's like, well, let's go back to 2005, let's go back to 2010. And then took all that information and then charted it from like everything from like all hormone levels, uh, you know, um, facet blood glucose, what did this look like? What did all your, I mean, Mm -hmm. it was insane to look at these graphs. And uh, I was like, so what is this? And he's like, you're definitely healthier now than you were when you played in the NFL. I was like, why is that? And he's like, I think that the oxidative stress and the damage of doing that job Mm -hmm. uh, is extremely hard on the body in all these different ways. And so it was pretty interesting. He's like, you're actually getting healthier. He's like, there was a point where it kind of did this and then it went back up. But I thought it was pretty fascinating. And I, I, and I I know that stuff's so high level to try to do. And it's, you know, there's probably legal on this and you got, you know, all these other things. And then you can't, uh, you know, that's somebody's personal medical history that's tied to them. People are probably nervous about getting it into a permanent record. No. no. Um, So 
the the question essentially has to you. There's there's hormones and and those type of things, okay. And then your standard blood profile, okay. We do the standard blood pro profile within the Air Force regulations, so we definitely do that, and that does go on their record. And what we're creating is a database. We call it the cradle to the grave. Grave meaning retirement. Um, so oh, we get it. We get yeah, it. yeah. Just sometimes I feel like you got to clarify that. Otherwise yeah, it's yeah kind we're of not a, trying to a grave put them in the grave. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this is from when they enter into our pipeline all the way to when they retire, you know, 20 some years later, hopefully. Um, so we're gonna be, we're just starting that initiative now. So that's what's going into SmarterBase. So we will have 20 plus years in 20 years. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, they'll be able to, when they retire, they'll be able to see all that information. And then especially it's important for the aspect of, uh, you know, if something happens, we know where you started. We know if you had a traumatic brain injury coming in, we, we baseline all these things. And then what we're plan is, is every, and we haven't picked a specific year, but we're thinking every three years, text comes back in to, for maintenance, right? Just like you would an airplane and the aspect, like it has to be on a maintenance cycle. So you come back in and we check, you know, do a deep dive and then we kick you out again. So hopefully we're catching things before they become big things. Uh, so they'll come in for a big psychological. You know, remember how Exos was doing that uh, that warrior, something warrior, eagle, eagle fund, uh, where essentially guys would get hurt and then to, oh, yeah, you have yeah. to kind of push them away. Because yeah. if you try to do rehab at, like, like yeah. when I was at seventh grade, we try to do rehab there, then they got to, they usually get pulled out of rehab because they got work stuff that yeah. are easily accessible. Yeah, so no, uh, when I was down else. in uh, Pensacola, was it, yeah, in Pensacola one um, at the Andrews Institute. Mm -hmm. So the Exos uh, facility is tied to the Andrews Institute. So when I was in there visiting Ken Ford and then also uh, when I actually had my shoulder surgery, uh, they have a huge facility and they're working with, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of broken individuals. Uh, I joked when I was there and called it, oh, look, it's the island of misfit toys. And I, like, uh, I don't know if their uh, strength coaches and the people there appreciated the humor, but uh, all the dudes that were training there just were fucking dying. Like I could tell I'm like, oh, I tell you guys, get, you guys are in the military. You got a sick sense of humor. Yeah, yeah definitely have one of those. So um, let's see other other technology. Is that where we were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, OK, um, so we did. Uh, I mean, you're obviously tracking these guys. You're looking at their food. Uh, the other one, too, is um, I remember you had those like different eating stations, like uh, food stations where people could come and just get what they wanted or like, you uh, know, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. to stay to stay on it. And then also uh, the fact that you were looking like we went into the sleep rooms with uh, with sheets that were at a certain like I want to say count or a certain type of sheet, like a cool sheet. And then also keeping the room at a specific temperature that they slept in. Yeah, I believe it was 68 because they sleep in compression gear. 68, That's what it is, compression gear. But they sleep in compression gear. We intentionally, like normally working with, you know, sweaty, dirty people, like <laughs> you, you're like, no, we don't want white sheets. Like that, that is ridiculous. Why would you do that? Well, we did it intentionally because we're trying to teach life skills as well. Yeah. It's like, take a shower before you go to bed, dirtball. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to see, like having kids, um, I'm pretty sure for my kids that if I didn't remind them to shower every, at least every other day, mm -hmm. like, uh, like sometimes I'm like, did you shower yesterday? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, no, you didn't. And uh, I think as an adult, you get up and you kind of get into a routine. You're like, hey, uh, I'm going to get up and work out. I'm going to take a shower and I'll be all right. Mm -hmm. um, my kids, like, 
I, I just think that's a kid thing. So it's pretty interesting that you get yeah. into a point with these guys that come in and you're yeah. like, you know, you got to shower every day and brush your teeth twice a day and wash your hands. I know it's crazy. Yeah. And teach them how to do laundry. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people, like it, it's. Who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's weird that this isn't like me growing up. It's like, shit, I think I came out of the womb knowing, knowing how to do laundry. Like that was just expected. Like I did laundry. Um, you know, in yard work and, and yeah. every, every, everything else. But, uh, you know, a lot of these kids, they don't even know how to work a washer and dryer that are coming through. So it's quite the interesting kind of generations we have coming. When I went to college, uh, my roommate, uh, who was, I mean, I, I grew up with a mom and dad in the home and, you know, two older brothers and, you know, we had to all pitch in and do this. And, uh, I wasn't necessarily allowed to put clothes in the washing machine cause I'm pretty sure I would have fucked that up. But like my job was to basically like, once it was in the dryer, it was, it was my responsibility to like make sure everything was folded. So we had these baskets and, you know, we would just sit down and watch TV and just do the laundry, you know, fold everything, put it away and do the whole deal. So when I went to college, my roommate shows up with like a bag and this was pretty interesting. Uh, he showed up with a bag and he just emptied it all over his side of the room. And I was like, oh, I like put everything in my drawers, the whole deal. And what he would do is when things get dirty, he would just throw them into a box, like a big, like a uh, brown paper box. Mm-hmm. And then he would take the box like every month, maybe two. Uh, and he only had about a week's worth of stuff. And he would take it down and he would just dump it all in the washing machine and like whatever soap is there, throw it in and then like dry it and then take it back and then take the stuff, throw it back on the floor. And I learned that was ever on the floor or like around was clean in different states. Anything in the box was dirty. And I remember like seeing this and being like, holy shit, to the point where uh, I was like, fuck, um, I was like, here's my side and your side. Don't let your shit get on my side. And dude, that was uh, a really interesting uh, like freshman year, like exposure to somebody where I mean, just completely raised very, very differently than I was. And that was like within his realm. And uh, I remember being like, like, your people have roommates. So they got to get that special. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's a big room. We put them in a bay and it's unisex. So male, female bathrooms, like essentially the, 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 they have doors and then showers have doors. So then you like, you just can't leave uh, the shower area or anything like that, but without a top or bottom. So, and that's kind of the rule of thumb. So it's, yeah, it's gender neutral. Um, and it's, they look at it as a team, team environment. So, and, and they had, um, uh, okay. So, uh, obviously that, and then, uh, there was also those recovery rooms. Like I remember there was like a big blue room. Yeah. Uh, the big blue room was, yeah, recovery and a myofascial, uh, stretching, uh, sense, and then we have a recovery room on the other side and in like the hyper ice, you know, their, their sleeves it used to be Norma tech. Mm-hmm. It might still be Norma tech, but I think hyper ice owns them now. I don't mm-hmm. know. Something like that. Um, but we have those recovery devices as well. Mm. And then, uh, um, we went down and checked out a little bit of like the weight room and the performance stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then also there were PTs and ATCs on staff working with those guys, yep. which was kind of off like where we were with like where the students were. And then we had to drive over to where like the training facility was. Uh, okay. So at where, where the, uh, or prep is the big, big location that you're talking about. We do have an AT bay there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do the short term acute care. Um, where if they come over to the other side and they're at prep, that means they're probably hurt at that point, and it's going to be longer than a, a four-week four, four process. So then they go into long-term, and then they'll be recycled back through, mm. assuming it doesn't turn into a bigger issue. 
Um, but yeah, on the other side, yeah, right now, that AT Bay kind of area, the big rehab center that you saw, that's, that's kind of our, well, we got that training, we have that for rehab. That's our main rehab center for that side of the base. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have a little performance facility in there. We have an outside uh, fit fact is what we call it, an outside training facility. And then we just built another one uh, that is more of a big open turf with some of those, uh, I want to say they're probably beaver fit connexes. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple of those out there to support that entity. And then right now we're building a temporary uh, 20,000 square foot facility. Um, we're looking at how many squat racks? I think we have 16 half racks, but dual sided. So 32 squat racks going into that plane. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a big, big beast. Who's the, who's the brand? Uh, it's going to go to contracting. Oh, I got you. Cool. Uh, man, that's, that's a lot. How big is your team? Like the, the coaches that are not plugging away at the computer, but on the, on the floor managing the weight room experience. Uh, we have across our pipeline, we have 17 strength coaches, 17 athletic trainers, um, I think six dietitians, six, maybe six dietitians, six psychologists, um, dietitian, psychologist. I say dietitians. Mm-hmm. I think I did. Yeah, I'm missing one. Uh, somebody on our team, and I'll probably get in trouble for it. Uh, PTs. There we go. PTs and OTs. We have about five, four or five. And then, uh, do, you, do you have like data, uh, like sorry, data analysts? I mean, people that are pulling and looking at all this information in yeah, real time. So we have a research flight as well. So we have an epidemiologist, ops research analyst. We have uh, exercise physiologist, uh, and they. So I kind of look at our organization again. I love like discovery shows. So like Gold Rush, hmm. love that show. Yeah. Uh, cool. In the aspect, like the coaches are doing the dirty work of digging up the the data, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're doing that work. So they're the big machinery, and then they bring it to the the the, the uh, trommel, right? To to do the big gross kind of you know filtering down. And I look at that as smarter base, smarter base is then kind of just taking the big crap that doesn't matter and putting things in the proper piles, right? Then it goes to a research flight, which is the fine processing to pull, pull and find where the actual gold is. Um, and then that they use, they give that information to our coaches, and our coaches then it doesn't tell them exactly where to go, but it gives them a vector of where they're going and informs their decision if we're making the right decision or not. So yeah, we've got we've got uh, quite the diverse team all underneath one one uh, one roof. I think right now when when I first started here, I'd say we probably had a staff of, and this includes support personnel. We probably had a staff of twenty. I think we are up to probably one eighty right now, and so we we've grown massively in the last you know year and a half too. So yeah, it's 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 been a hell of a ride. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah, the number of professionals that you can take on increases with that as well. What did it start at? You said goal is 200? Yeah, for, for coming in the front side. So through our pipeline, um, get a lot of numbers in the door um, at prep. So prep is our most utilized space. Then as soon as you finish there, it goes one of two ways. And it goes, if you're TACP, you go straight into the TACP pipeline, and they have their own process. If you're going to combat controller, special recon, or PJ pipeline, then you go through assessment and selection. Once you finish that process, 
then it kind of goes into a spider web. How many people get through prep? I mean, is there a peeling out prep? Is there a paring down in prep? Or is prep kind of like we're prepping everybody and then we let selection kick them out? Yeah, unless somebody SIE, so they just, they self, like, quit, Mm -hmm. um, then most people make it through prep. Hmm. Now, there's some people, like, in my personal opinion, I think if you can't pass the fitness standard to leave prep, there's other things going on. Mm -hmm. Um, especially after eight weeks of training. Um, so then we have a, a little holding group on the side to potentially give them another chance, uh, which they're, they're usually pretty successful with that. But then when, you know, potentially they come back through, I think there's something else potentially going on, like mm-hmm. the factor of not having a greater purpose or not really wanting to be there. Uh, whereas a cool idea up front until you start to realize what's really kind of coming your way. And I think that might weigh heavily on their mind. Mm. Um, what, what would be the reservations? Like just the uh, the forward operation or, you know, I don't know, self-preservation or the fact that this is going to be hard. But, I mean, uh, like, are people searching for an easier way out? I think it goes down to what their purpose is. Like if you're doing this to show off for your girlfriend, if you're doing this and then she broke up with you while you're at basic training, so now you lost that purpose. Or if your purpose was, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go do this because I play the video game. You know, if you had a greater purpose, you know, whether it's a religious purpose, whether it's a uh, spiritual, whether it's it's your bottom line intent in life, like you got a family member, your dad did it, so then, you know, you got you to gotta show dad that you got it too. You know, like there's legacy, I guess that's what I was looking for. Um, but it, I think a lot of it would boil down to what your purpose is sure. or maybe overestimating your ability. Potentially. So, but we're giving you... People get too out and far in front of their skis. Yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite one. Don't get too far out in front of your skis. Nice. So, once people roll through your prep and then they get into selection, what's the, uh, like, what's the success rate like of those guys? And I know that's kind of how you guys are judging your prep. Like, once you guys get them prepped, ready to rock, and you push them out to selection for, like, the TACPs, PJs, and whatnot... Mm how many of those guys are being successful and have you guys seen a dramatic increase in success going through selection to these things since implementing this incredible program? So I'm not going to talk hard numbers because I think yeah, they, no, well, they we're just want to anecdotal, anecdotal. anecdotal. I would say who finished the pipeline, probably three out of 10 um, finish all the way at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's fair, fair to say. It's, uh, you know, it, some people are physically there, and, but then later that mental aspect comes into it and they may not make it. But, you know, we, we don't like to hang our hat on that attrition rate. It, we're, we, assessment and selection is supposed to pull out these certain characteristics that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And once those characteristics are pulled and you, you, got, you, know, you do your psyche valve and then you're getting two thumbs up, right? Once you have that, then... It's our job to train and mentor you. So the more people that we have fail out past um, assessment and selection, it's kind of like it's not a badge of honor. It's it's like shit. What what did I do wrong? How can we how can we how could I have trained you better to do X Y Z? You know whatever the job is. So and and part of it is we've got to kind of change that mantra of protecting a pipeline. Like you know you were a PJ, you're trying to become a PJ. You don't think he has it, you know, whatever it is in your personal opinion, not an objective opinion. 
we've got to train you out of that mindset. Because, I mean, if we all think back to high school, we both we all walked uphill both ways, 10 feet of snow, you yeah. know, barefoot. No, I grew up it, in Southern California. Yeah, there was no, no snow. No, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, you grew up in Iowa. I guarantee there was a ton of snow. Oh, yeah. But I mean, no. you know, the only time we saw snow was when we drove to the mountains to go for ski club. Which was bitching. Uh, it was like 25 bucks. You show up at like 5 o'clock in the morning at the yeah. parking lot, like where the big uh, like pavilions was, and there was a bus, and you got on a bus, and you got to go skiing for the day. It was nice. awesome. Yeah. Nice. God, I wish that still existed. I want to just go like somewhere and just now, get on a bus. and Now it's owned by corporations, <laughs> and that, that $5 bus is 50 bucks, and that pass is... Yeah, you, fourth, know, you need a $4,000 icon pass. Oh, yeah. shit. Um, but uh, um, but when, the way we remember things sometimes end up exaggerated, right? Like, oh, that was the hardest thing yeah. ever. Well, no. Like, one time I went back to Fort Benning, and I, I walk in, and I'm like, oh, this is it? I had this, this like, other vision in my head, and I'm like, Pah. it's like, what the hell? Uh, but, you know, some of our instructors carry that, and I'll say some, maybe some of our, our strength and conditioning folks, well, they back when I was that age, you know, that kind of philosophy. When... Oh, maybe your memory's distorted. So that's this all this data we're collecting. Mm-hmm. That's going to help smooth out that process. And like you know, if somebody's saying, "Oh, we're just making it easier on these kids," we, we'll have well, data to say no. Every generation, like I, I mean, there's an actual term for this, but every generation thinks that the generation in front of them had it easier than they do. Now, uh, I have to preface that, like you know, I mean, we went through a Great Depression. I mean, we world wars, and I mean, we've been in war with this country for over you know twenty years. I mean. I remember sitting with General Camera, and he's like, I have kids going to war that weren't alive during 9-11. I mean, so it's pretty interesting, uh, you know, the perception of this stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, all you got to do is go read The Grapes of Wrath and some, uh, you know, John Steinbeck stuff and know, you know, people had it tough. But there's always this idea that the, the next generation, I mean, I, I look at my kids today and I'm like, like uh, the Internet went down. <laughs> my daughter was like, like stressing about the Internet. I'm like, you're nine years old go outside, like throw some rocks at your little brother, like do something. <laughs> and, uh, it just, it's it, like, I think what we've done is we've created such a level. I mean, we've created not only comfort, but also, uh, just ease of everything. I mean, think about the fact that like people don't even have to go grocery shopping anymore. You just get online and this stuff comes to your house. Like that was one of my favorite things growing up. And still is this day. I like going to the grocery store. I like walking around. I like seeing the stuff. I like you know, being in this involved in this process. But I think what we've done is we've created um, just through advancement, we've just created, made everything easy. And so I think with uh, a program and especially what I really liked about the prep was instead of just going old school, this is how we did it. And this is how it's always going to be done. Mm-hmm. I think you guys realize that people today are changing and the, the lens of the past is not going to focus on the future. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, all the things like you said, like putting them in white sheets, so they're teaching them to stay clean and this, I mean, all the things that you didn't think you had to do to, to, uh, do anymore. And I remember the one that struck me was them being like, we teach kids how to make their beds. You'll mm-hmm. be surprised at how many kids come in and don't know how to make hospital corners and like how to like actually do a bed. My mom was, uh, um, worked as a nurse. So like she showed us how to make beds and hospital corners and this is how you smooth it out and this is how you tuck it under mm-hmm. and you make your bed every morning when you get up and like all of these things that are ingrained in your life. I mean, if nobody's there to beat you down or nobody was there to beat down the people that are there to teach you to beat you down, mm-hmm. then it's a, you know, a downstream effect. 
Yeah. So I had that, that was what I really was appreciative about the program was it wasn't just trying to put you into some situation to get you ready to go do this. It was like teaching life skills and showing people, hey, there's a better way to do things. And mm-hmm. I think if we're going to be successful going forward in the future, we have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's a number of coaches, a Jim Kiabaso quote, and he said this on the podcast, he talked about transformative coaches versus transactional. Mm-hmm. Those that look that. at it basically nine to five, I'm sure your hiring process, which I do want to spend a little time in, uh, weeds those folks out, but they're still out there. Mm-hmm. And maybe these individuals grew up in that household or that sports system and where it was just very transactional and they didn't have the opportunity to grow. But yeah, I, I highly value that once they're in the prep and a coach looks or your your team looks, okay, how can we improve how we communicate versus pointing the finger at the kid and blaming them? And the data allows you to then, okay, how can we improve and coach each other up to, because, to, I mean, we want these guys to succeed. Right, and, and that's a dual-edged sword right there in the aspect of there's a transactional um, it could be looked at in the aspect of military discipline. So the aspect that, um, you know, right now, and I, I think that there's some truth to it, is that they they are being coddled a little bit, and that's fine. But I strongly believe in the aspect of building the physiological pro foundations so that they can present their technical and tactical skills. 100% believe that. But I believe there's also... A time that those two, the technical, tactical, and the strength and conditioning can be blend together. Um, and I think it needs to be done. So we have young kids that we're talking about don't know how to make their beds, don't know how to do laundry, don't know how to do this. They have like maybe, let's see, three months of military experience. So do you think that ingrains military discipline? No. So what we're talking about doing, again, we're trying to get the foundation in place first, and then we can start to have a little bit more fun with it. In the aspect of uh, when you come in to in the door, it's no kidding. Toe the damn line. There's no fun music. It's not high five, slap you on the butt. I'm going to develop a relationship with you. It's toe the line. Pay attention to detail. Uh, you move when I tell you to move. That type of strength and conditioning. Um, but as we progress them through the program, then we let the reins off. Where if you end up at the end of the course, now we've developed a relationship. We, we, we didn't ingrain that strength and conditioning is the devil and, oh, you know, this type of thing. We instilled discipline. We instilled, you know, putting weights back so the logo's all the same. Dress right dress. You know, a lot of these things of, of discipline can be found in, in the weight room. My first strength coach, Rourke Kutchlow, he's now at Mizzou, he... Like we had those handle uh, the round plates with the handles on the side in Iowa State or maybe it's Illinois State. I he at the end of the day he just look go down and he should be able to see from one side of the weight room to the other by looking through those holes and then he does a logo check all the dumbbells logos the same benches dress right dress you know all those type of pay attention to detail we can do the same thing within in our field as well ingraining and reinforcing discipline military discipline right. And then as we graduate, as you get more and more through the course, now it might be where I slap you on the butt, you know, high-five you, give you a hug because you peed R or PR'd, and then, you know, what music do you guys want today? Like, give you more of an influence as you're heading out the door to go to your unit. So, Awesome. No, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's much needed, and I think we um, kind of look a lot of, I mean, it's kind of interesting that uh, 
uh, you know, guys go in with these ideas, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to do this, and then they fail, and there's never really like, did we put them in the best chance to succeed? Mm -hmm. And I think what was really fascinating is just from the presentation that I got was uh, people were failing out too quickly. We needed to figure that out, and I think so many times, uh, you know, hey, we don't. It, it's so easy to lean on. Well, we, we're just not getting the right people. These kids today aren't tough enough. And I just really, man, like that really struck me as an intelligent way of being like, we can't change the individuals that are coming to us. Like we can't, like uh, you know, there's no draft. We can't go out and recruit. I mean, we can recruit, but we can't force. Mm -hmm. So we either got to change our recruiting and go into some different places. Or the people that are coming in, we have to put them in the best position to be successful. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really took away from that is like, hey, if, uh, if you go into this situation and you can't succeed, there's probably no other situation that's going to give you as much benefit coming in the front door. And I also think, um, I mean, like, like you said, it's just not very well known about. Like, you're not going to really see that on recruiting posters. I'm wondering about, uh, you know, think about an 18-year-old kid going in to talk to different recruiters and, you know, goes into, you know, uh, you know, if he wants to be a warfighter door kicker, he's either going to go talk to the Marines or maybe the Navy because he knows about the SEALs or, you know, the Army because he wants to be a, a Ranger or Green Beret or something. Mm -hmm. How many guys are going into the Air Force, like, without some prior knowledge of being directed that way and been like, wow, you guys have this forward operation, you know, these guys that attach to, you know, other soft, you know, spec mm -hmm. war individuals and are always pretty well switched on. I mean, every SEAL that I've known, um, you know, in the, you know, many we've dealt with, whenever they've had to work with any of the PJs or any of the guys that were in those kind of roles were always very complimentary. Mm -hmm. So those guys are pretty well sorted. Yeah, we, we just, uh, uh, we have a re recruiting squadron now. Um, so that When did that come out? I want to say last year. Wow. So 2020. So, so it's, it's, it's brand new, but, you know, it, we, we were all pointing at the same problem saying, hey, we need, we need to do something here. Uh, we need to. And so and on top of that, we have uh, field developers now, too. Field developers have been around for a couple of years. So that's essentially text. You're looking to join our pipeline. You pass the original, like, Air Force standard PT test. Once you pass that test, now I randomly come visit you. I talk about the, you know, what it takes to be a PJ, what it, you know, hey, this is what I did, how I became successful, I'll give you some workouts, give you, you know, kind of a, a, some mentoring on the process, and then you have reach back capability to me whenever you like, whenever you get a question, whenever your mom has a question, I'll be right there to answer those questions. Well, the other one, too, is, uh, which was really intelligent, was actually doing some early programming for kids uh, associated with PJ Mask. So I guess you guys will know about that cartoon. There's a cartoon that my kids watch called PJ Mask. Uh -huh. and, uh, is that propaganda? I, I think what they did is they went in and they were like, we need to make this PJ thing more accessible to kids. So we're going to have a whole cartoon. Uh, this is a terrible joke. Uh -huh. I, was, I was trying to run with it, and you guys are looking, giving me the dead eye, fish eye. But no, because you, you guys, you, you don't have kids, do you? No. Not that I know of. Yeah, no, not that. Well, they don't really approach you until later. Uh, but like, no, there's a, a cartoon that my kids watch, and um, it's PJ Mask, and it's these little kids, and they turn into superheroes. Any any Air Force Academy people come your way? Is it all? Uh, we we have a few in intermix. It depends. Um, officers typically. Um, because when they leave the academy, they're officers. So I mean, and this is more for enlisted, right? No, it's it, we have a full oh. full range. Now, do do the enlisted work uh, like I mean, everybody goes into the same pool, kind of like in the you know, like in you know uh, the SEAL pipeline. Yeah. So what you'll see is um, they try to put the the leaders in leadership positions, 
and then at random points, like the crows and the stoves, they'll they'll break off from the, the main core, but then they'll end up coming back in. Uh, th- but that's for their specific training of, of leadership and stuff like that. Gotcha. So, um, okay. What's on the horizon? Like, uh, you know, I mean, we've we've talked a lot about about the history and kind of what's happening and, you know, this progression to, you know, uh, not only prepare people better, but to use science and use the technologies and like, you know, whether or not people want to realize it, we are so technologically advanced. Mm -hmm. I mean, more so than probably any other point, unless, you know, we're talking about the ancient Atlanteans and, you know, mass extinctions and whatnot and aliens, but you know, we'll save that for another podcast. Uh, but like, you know, we are so tech enabled that it, it makes sense to let this in. But I, I keep thinking like, you know, what's the evolution? Like, what's the future? I mean, is there, uh, you know, are we going to get to the point where they're going to create some AI where now you can, you know, plug a kid in for 10 minutes and know whether or not he's going to be successful based off of just personality? Because it feels like a lot of times, uh, you know, all the physical attributes aside and all this, like grit is by far the mm-hmm. biggest, you know, variable that you really can't necessarily test until you put them into the pipeline. And, you know, we had Angela Duckworth on the podcast, which you can reference that one in the show notes, but like her book grit was yeah. uh, amazing. Like how do you build grit in kids? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't make it easy on them and you force people to do things that they don't want to do like, and find creative ways to get them to do it. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I read that book. Great book. Um, I, so Dr. Mike Askin, he's a psychologist, worked with uh, Dave Grossman. You familiar with him on combat, on killing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I read those books. Um, so I was given to those by some Marines. Yeah. Um, so th- those guys kind of work together. Well, uh, Mike Askin, doctor, is a psychologist. For, he used to work for Pennsylvania Police. I think he's kind of went into his private practice. But he talks about mental toughness skills, uh, performance imagery, concentration, arousal control, self-talk, and goal setting. So he talked about those things. I found him because when I was working in that special mission unit, it's like I was seeing that, like, wait, I got dad bot over here that's crushing things, and then I got a hero over here that's underneath a little stress falling apart. Um, by hero, I meant physically. Um, but, uh, you know, so I was like, okay, I got to wrap my head around this. So yeah. I reached out to Dr. Mike Askin, and he told me that, that develops, or those are skills that can develop mental toughness, and there's some uh, genetic factors in there. Sure. And, and you know, uh, nurture nature, that type of thing. Um, so those type of things. And then I read uh, Angela's book, and she talks about grit in a different manner. So I've kind of taken those two philosophies and blended them together in the aspect that we can teach you those five skills, and then over time, so, so that you can rely on them. Then when you get to that situation where you're developing grit, now you know arousal control. Now you know how to turn off that little voice in your head and those type of things then you're more successful at that grit event. And then eventually enough of those, the the singular events develops like grit, grit, like true grit, like Duck Lowe's talking about. Mm, Interesting. That's the, that's the essence and the beauty of the weight room. We aim to communicate that with high school athletes or high school coaches. Mm -hmm. That's their time to fail. Yeah. And then teaching them the behavior and the reaction to, I didn't get the weight or this kid beat me at bench press or my coach gives, or my, my favorite working with kids is coaching them with a skill or in a weight room and you give them a correction. They're like, no, I didn't. No, no. Why else would I be giving you a direction? You don't like me. You're making this thing up because you don't like me. Well, it's, uh, and trying to (laughs) then give them the, the direction, the behavior of how to then act 
when they are given a correction or a cor- uh, constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. And it's the practice, it's the weight room. So when come game time, when I do bring it up to a level 10, mm-hmm. you know, they don't uh, disappear up their own asshole. Man, I, I, I dealt with this with my daughter. Uh, she, she actually, um, her, so she plays basketball games on Saturdays. And uh, her her team's actually pretty good. They they beat this other team who was uh, forty four to four. It was an absolute bloodbath. Like she had like twelve points, like had rebound. Like it was it was bad to to the point where uh, they just stopped uh, putting the score up on the scoreboard. So like the other kid, like it was pretty funny. They just had uh, like twenty to to four. They just stopped counting, and like the um, uh, like the scorekeeper kept counting. Obviously, so we we found out and. Uh, when we were in the car, she was like, what'd you think? I'm like, I, you know, you, you played great. You got some points, but here's some things that you could work on. And she's like, why do you always have to tell me the negative? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm like, ah, cause I, uh, that's the way I roll. Like I never, like I, I was never focused on what I did well when I played. Like I knew what I did well. Um, I was only focused on what I didn't do well because that was my best opportunity to get better. Mm-hmm. Like just focusing on the stuff I was good at. So like I wasn't interested in like the the seventy plays that I kicked ass. I was interested in the three to five plays that I might not have kicked ass because that was my biggest opportunity for improvement. And so like trying to talk to her, I'm like, we know you did well. Like I don't need to sit here in the car for thirty minutes and tell you how great you did. Like you're telling me. And like I was there, I high fived you, I was stoked. But if you want that to be fifty points and to get twenty points, you have to look and say, All right, hey, I know I gotta get rebounds, I gotta box people out. I'm gonna have to learn to dribble with my other hand. And on the other point, you have to be able to, uh, you know, pass the ball. Like, um, we worked on this one, but all, all the kids throw the ball high and then everybody jumps. So I had her like fake and then bounce pass. Dude, she does it. And like, and I'm like, ah, finally, see, we worked on that. Here's something. Yeah. So I, I, I think that there's an interesting, and where I'm going with the story is there's an interesting kind of like balance between like being supportive, but also like not blowing smoke up your kid's ass, but being yeah. like honest and like, Hey, you know what? Like, that was a good effort. You did well, but here's all the things you have to. And I think that a lot of times with, you know, kids, especially young athletes, they don't know how to take coaching. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was a big thing for me. It was like, uh, you know, like I'm not, but maybe it's a genetic nurture versus nature deal where I think some people need a lot of praise. I just figured if, if, uh, uh, if you're not saying anything, I'm doing it right. And if you say something, I probably should fix it. Yeah. I I call it like the Perel the the hand sanitizer Mm -hmm. theory in the aspect like we live i think so nurture nature yes there's there's that aspect as well but even within that i think that we pad too many corners like we protect people too much so you can't fall make a mistake because i'm a hovering parent and i'm making sure that you're okay and you're protected at all times yeah it's called helicopter parenting yeah uh, i put padded corners on everything to protect you from hurting yourself when we get hurt we learn lessons Right. Oh, uh, the actual term is lawnmower parent because uh, you're cutting out all the obstacles. The helicopter uh, parent just flies in, fixes the problem, and flies yeah. out. So, uh, but now we have a society that people haven't ran into problems and they don't know how to solve them. You know, and your natural reaction when you don't know something is to get angry about it, and it's not your fault. And why why are you picking on me and those type of things? Uh, so. I, you know, I think that's something in a society that we need to, you know, and it clearly you are. Uh, we saw that with uh, with one of our interns um, where he came and, you know, like I think this, you know, the internship, I mean, we're kind of demanding 
And it was the first time in his life he'd ever done something that he didn't succeed at. Mm -hmm. And we were like on him about like, hey, you got to do this better than this. And he's like, well, everything I've done, I've always done well. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was an interesting point that, you know, here's a kid who was, you know, in his early 20s, you know, very, very, uh, you know, smart, intelligent, you know, well-sorted individual Mm -hmm. who had not really encountered any form of like, you suck, you need to pull it up. Yeah, High high school varsity athlete, 4.0 at at, at A&M. Yeah, which is not an easy school. Very smart, and, and very. And we just, were the first challenge, and and a nice kid to boot, man. Like I, you know, like he like the type of kid where, as a father of a daughter, you'd be like, you would, I would be very happy if you showed up like on prom night, like this, like very nice, respectful, like awesome kid. Yeah. Uh, but just it was interesting that like, and as soon as I think we we caught a glimpse of that, we were like, well, fuck, we got to turn it up. I mean, if we're going to be the uh, the life moment. But I, um, there was a pretty interesting piece of research I read that uh, actually Dr. Ants and I talked about a little bit, and then he forwarded on to me that um, pain is uh, uh, if you can exp- or or, kid, or individuals that experience like lots of pain, like through an, an injury or just something physical earlier in life, tend to have a like. Uh, the pain is not as severe later because um, I have a pretty high pain threshold. And so as we were talking about it, but I broke my collarbone, my older brother picked me up and slammed me on the ground when I was about three or four years old and broke my collarbone. And then my neighbor, who was a doctor, said it in his kitchen. And then my mom made me a little dish towel sling. So like, you know, we didn't have any health insurance, like straight up like country shit, even though I didn't live in the country. Uh, But like things like that. And, um, you know, uh, like I've, you know, cut myself or we got injured and, you know, like, so there, we, we were always fucking something up and breaking something. And, uh, you know, I get to the NFL and, you know, break my leg and I'm like, well, I'm fine after three weeks, even though it's still broken. Mm -hmm. And so like pain threshold. And he, he said that there was pretty interesting research that talked about like traumatic pain and injury earlier in life kind of sets you up to be able to take more later. Mm -hmm. And I think the analogy ranks true, especially for kids that, you know, the sooner that you can face some form of adversity where, you know, you're not good at something and you're not the good one, you're picked last. And even though that sucks, but that kind of teaching you of like, hey, I'm not the best at this. I have to put the skills together, you know, with work and effort and desire to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm always nervous for my kids. Like I like I don't want them to be naturally good at anything. Like that's a big thing. Like I, I think whereas like kids just want to find something they're good at and I want them to suck at everything mm-hmm. so that they have to persevere. And I know that's terrible as a dad, but I want them to know what it's like to be picked last to like have that. Cause, um, I also know that uh, shame is a fucking powerful motivator it was for mm-hmm. me. me. Like too. the thought of like not being good enough, like busting my ass. Cause I don't want to be the one who, who's the weak link. And, um, I think we don't do ourselves any, any, you, you do our kids a disservice by one protecting them from that. Mm-hmm. or just trying to put them into the things that you know, they're good at. So it's an easy life. Yep. I a hundred percent agree. Like, yeah, you gotta, I, I don't, I don't have any kids. I got a dog, but I do like talking about my dog like he's a kid. Mm. But um, the the aspect of my personal opinion with kids is absolutely that. Like, set them up for failure. Let them let them see what failure's like in a controlled environment, just like the weight room. Yeah, you know, if we can show them, you know, oh, you failed on a PR. Who cares? Let's try it again. Well, and, and here's the interesting thing about the weight room. Uh, if you load enough weight on, everybody fails. Yeah. Like, it's like, hey, great, you got that. Put one more pound on it, and then you get fucking shattered. Like, like that's what I always appreciate about the weight room. Like, all of a sudden, you don't go do something. You pick up, and you're like, 
holy shit, that used to be light. That's not now that's super heavy. Let me get back on this. Are there any, you mentioned some attributes earlier that I wrote down. Is anything in the leadership pipeline where you're educating on leading and giving the opportunity to find your voice or is that later on? Yeah, we put them in leadership positions. So they've got to make sure people are on time. They're going where they're supposed to be. Like, okay, let's say you forgot your, I don't know, you forgot some shoelace that I wanted you to carry around all day just because, and you're the leader. Okay, where's the shoelace? Oh, you don't have it? Hey, John, where the hell is the shoelace? Why doesn't he have his shoelace? Why, like, this is you. This is your fault. Sure. Right? And then so he has to police that up. So it's, it's putting them in the leadership position knowing there's consequences for your actions. Uh, I think maybe more that uh, speaking and things like that, I think that's probably the ROTC program or, you know, wherever they, they, they became a uh, young officer. Um, and because they've already been through the Air Force side of entrance, right? Mm-hmm. Now they're going for special operations. Why do they call it the Chair Force? I think, I'm not going to lie, I'm an infantry guy, so I always said that. Yeah, I've heard, uh, oh, Chair Force. Yeah, now, and again, caveat <laughs> this, I still have a job when I go back to work on Monday, Yeah, is the aspect that... Um, well, the different branches of service tend yeah. to make fun of each other. Yeah, and I didn't know Special Warfare Battlefield Airmen existed before, yeah. right? Bring that back. So, hey, I didn't know at the time. I was uneducated. But, no, a lot of the positions, uh, you know, you look at some of the flying positions, you're sitting. A lot of it's a tech support kind of technology kind of realm so it's a lot of it sitting so well it's like uh in the navy i mean uh there's the idea of uh you know like submariners like the submarine dudes versus uh individuals that are you know like uh, seals i mean couldn't be more different that you have these forward operators and these guys that are you know kicking ass and you know taking names and then other dudes that are sitting in a sub underwater you know for months and seamen uh, they call them submariners. Mm. Um, the seamen are on boats, on boats. Uh, which is another crazy one. But like, I, I remember uh, Andy Stumpf when Andy went to that um, officer training school when he got commissioned up to an ensign. Um, it was pretty fascinating. He's like, man, there's like submariners here. I'm like, like a watch, like a Rolex. He's like, no, like literally dudes that are on the submarine. And I'm like, how are those guys? And he's like, talk about a fucking terrible job. You're like underwater. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, it's like, it's going to be dark. You're going to be uh, uh, breathing recycled air for the next, you know, 60 days. And uh, I mean, those guys like, you know, this, he's like, dude, that to me is fucking insane. automatically in on any submarine movie because my anxiety is heightened by how much I would not want to be in that experience. So little known fact, we've never had an underwater submarine battle. So like recorded history, like... Now, whether or not shit's classified, we don't know. But like, as I did some research on this years ago, because I was like, how, like, like, how do submarine battles end? Like, uh, you know, because we saw like the hunt for Red October oh, and this and the whole thing. Underrated U five seven one Matthew yeah. McConaughey. So, oh. so like, uh, they were like, we've never actually ever had like an underwater submarine battle between. And I'm like, there's no way. It's 2021. Anything's possible. Yeah, I, 20, you know what? 2020 like, set the bar. I mean, we, we, you know, they declassified in 2020, I and, hope that and we have happen? UFOs. Yeah, there's supposed to be some declassified. Uh, so I, I'm thinking that in Trump's last day, well, he's yeah. just going to fucking five declassify days. everything. Five days. I, I want to know about the Kennedy assassination, even though I think I know. Uh, I want to know uh, about the UFOs. I want to know about Roswell. Um, I want to know everything. Question. Can, can we come back one time and just do a conspiracy theory episode? Yes. 
I I can do it. I, I like sci-fi for people. Like I'm I'm not big on. I don't believe all like just like sci-fi, right? You know, it's make believe. But I like I love reading conspiracy theories. I'm not a conspiracy theory like yeah. I clear out there or anything, but it's like science. Fiction. Well, it, it, like I like like I love listening to them because they're so elaborate and yes. the 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 levels that people go to prove to you, like the flat earthers and like the one dude that got on there and analyzed all the routes for like airplanes and was able to like try to prove like there's all these like different orders of effect of magnitude of like, well, you know, because of this and this and we know this like, well, you know, we can't go to Antarctica. So we don't you know, it's just like you hear this stuff and you're like, this is crazy. Yes. Tell me more. Yes. I mean, I'm not believe me, I'm not buying in on it, but I'll give you 20 minutes to try to convince me, even though I'm not going to be convinced, but I'm just interested. Yeah. Here's like, enough. there's people that are fucking in on this. Yes. Yeah, here's enough rope to hang yourself. Let's go. Uh, dude, yeah. uh, like the, uh, uh, like my, <laughs> did you see, what's the guy, the uh, QAnon shaman? Yeah. The the guy at the Capitol who had like the, the, the horns and his face painted blue, red, oh, white, yeah, and blue, yeah. with like, uh, like some weird vest and then he had like a red backpack and he What's was calling the theory there uh he's the q non q what is it q non shaman shaman but, but he was refusing he's on a hunger strike because they won't give him organic food in prison yeah there's a lot of weird dude there's like a lot of weird <laughs> stuff within that this guy like i i was like first of all who like like where did this whole outfit come from and more importantly like what does this outfit say about you and then i heard he was like a shaman like he's actually an actor Oh, is he? Yeah, he's got uh, acting. He's got a, a, a SAG page. card or something. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. And then uh, uh, he was at the climate change thing in the same outfit. Like, it's his thing just to go to events and just, <laughs> I wouldn't say he's an agitator, but, and I don't know if he's uh, out. Well, he's but, arrested, is what he is. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they, you know the, the interesting thing is they went through and they had all this surveillance. And the hilarious part is they started posting the pictures and people were like, hey, we'll, we'll pay for, for tips. And people were like, hey, I know that guy. I know that guy. Like there was an yeah. Olympic swimmer who was wearing his Olympic jacket that was there yeah. uh, that like he got outed. I mean, dude, like it, it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, it just makes you realize that uh, those guys should have been wearing masks. And, yeah. you know, uh, like, I, 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 yeah, like, uh, like if, if you're wearing a black hoodie, sunglasses and a, like a black mask, like up around your face and you yeah. can't like, you can all and, and gloves and a black, you know, like, uh, yeah. like these guys are out there like show, like flashing their faces. I'm like, Oh God, don't they, shouldn't they be wearing masks? Yeah. Like if there was ever a time to wear a mask, it would probably be in that situation. The, they're inside of a Capitol building with, I think there's something else. Well, uh, if, if you like, I've been into the, uh, I've been into the Senate and I've been into Congress and I've walked in those offices yeah, legally. Uh, le well, yeah, legally, yeah, you know, saying, you know, breaking uh, in and think you're going to overthrow. Well, like, that's the scary thing because there's cameras fucking everywhere. Yeah, it's the Capitol. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Like people have to have something wrong that they're doing that. Well, and there's not even a, covering up like. Yeah, they're like, um, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, I'm sure you've had been in uh, numerous OPSEC. Uh, you know, classes. I remember I went and I did a gig for um, the guys at you know uh, Naval Special Warfare and had to sit through this like like two hour OPSEC meeting and like they brought in this dude who, you know, pulled all, you know, basically started pulling all this shit up and just gives you a glimpse behind the curtain of like, I don't want to know any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But like being like, dude, like if you've ever, you know, purchased a gun part or ammo or this, like you're on some, you know, some list and mm -hmm. you know, this idea and it was, it was pretty fascinating. But I, I think the thing is that, um, you know, information and technology is such a commodity 
that like, you know, like who, who is it? Who controls information? Oh, it's um, Newman. He controls the mail, controls, you know, controls the future. But it's so true, man, like the information controlling and like who kind of curates it and pushes it out and who gets to see you is so fascinating to me. Twitter, like, Twitter changed that world. Ah, I fucking hate Twitter. I, I used to be all about Twitter. I love that it was 165 characters. But the problem is, is it became uh, like like there was no like there's no long form discussion. Like you couldn't like mm-hmm. Twitter battles. I remember when I first got on Twitter, I was like, this is so dope. You can just show it, shoot out little things. And then like the Twittersphere, the blah, you know, these like different uh, dude. It, like I, I just was like, I like this is too much for me. This is like this is too much information happening in, mm-hmm. in real time. People live there. Yeah, no. Yeah. Have have are there social media lessons that you guys try to teach these young bucks? <laughs> I, I don't think so. By that maybe, point maybe that's they weeded themselves out. Maybe that's something they should have learned before. Yeah. Like, Man. I mean, yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, I mean, dude, I, I uh um yeah, no. We definitely need to do another one where we do a deep dive into the different conspiracies uh, because I think it's so fascinating. Like you said, it's like sci-fi. Like somebody should write a book and been like, yes. conspiracies of 2021. Here is me just outlining them all and going through and be like, okay, let's start at like Flat Earth and let's go. Chapter one, Flat Earth. Oh, God, the Flat Earthers. Tex, I still can't believe you're a Flat Earther. Yeah. And end of chapter one, the guy in the rocket that made his own rocket to prove the Earth was flat. Died. Didn't he die? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's because Sorry, there's, um, uh, there's a, a glass bubble shield that we can't break out of. And so what they do is when they shoot the, uh, um, the space station, the people out of space, they don't. They just go off in the ocean, and then they're in a soundstage. Oh, dude, I've heard these. Like, like, we've never gone to the moon. And then my favorite one is like, oh, you believe there's a moon? So what you have to do is you have to one-up their conspiracy. Oh, you got to out-conspiracy yeah, yeah, theory them? Oh, you're like, oh, you believe there's a moon? Yeah. And then they see that, and they're like, why there isn't? And you're like, you better look it up. You're down the, the main rabbit channel. Right? Oh, you think the earth and is then, flat? And then You goes, think this earth is real? It's amazing. Well, I always wonder, too, what's on the other side? So if the earth is flat... It's a spinning coin, John. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but how come no other planet we've observed is flat? You mean those pictures? Yeah, all those don't exist either. The Hubble <laughs> telescope, I mean, all the other stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I know. Uh, dude, but, but what's great is that somewhere on the internet, there's somebody that has an argument against anything you can bring out. Yeah. Are you, yeah, you're right. My, you could, yeah. you could like write my, a tweet that like, says, I love my mom, and there would be 20 people. No, you don't. Like, uh, <laughs> Dude, my favorite was that the dinosaur bones, like uh, dinosaurs and fossils, mm-hmm. are all faked because the Earth is only like X amount of years old. And like, uh, like that one. And so like, you know, like I, I love, um, uh, if you get a chance, go to the Houston museum of natural history. Mm-hmm. Um, it dude, I, I take my kids at least once a year, the fossils and dinosaur bones and like, dude, it's so bitching. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys are listening to this and you're anywhere near Houston, go to the Houston museum of natural science. It is by far one of the most amazing things I've ever been to. Uh, but like we, when we were kids, we go to the La Brea Tar Pits and you get to see all that. Like, I mean, like there's no way to fake that. And people are like, no, it's all fake. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We've had paleontologists, like I've talked to paleontologists. We had John Sobolski on, who's, um, you know, a classically trained geologist and now he's a marine biologist. And paleontologist. Yeah, like paleontologist. Pa- paleontologist. I mean, uh, Dr. Every, Grant. Yeah. I mean, dude, we've had people on that are, and they're like, no, no, no. There's, uh, there's this big conspiracy. I'm like, okay, well, think about this. 
Nobody can keep a fucking secret. The only people who can keep a secret is you and a dead man. And if you tell anybody, the secret's over. So you're telling me that for hundreds of years, there's been this scam that's been able to be pulled off. It's kind of like going to the moon. So you're telling me that there was, you know, dozens of countries and thousands of people that were involved in this that all had to be kept in place and sworn to secrecy over 50 plus years. Yeah. And yet, like, come on, like, that's not human nature. I mean, look at the fucking Internet, dude. Yeah. Like, I mean, <sighs> unbelievable. But now before we get into Tammy rabbit holes, uh, I do have final. Um, this yeah. doesn't have to be a long segment, but the strength and conditioning coach opportunities that are seemingly beginning, maybe they've been there and I've been unaware, but beginning to pop up mm. and the, the blow up of uh, tactical strength and conditioning, for lack of a better term, and the college and the fitness industry as a whole getting flipped upside down. What are what do these opportunities look like? One, and then explain the hiring process, because I know now you become a government employee and that changes things rather than just being like a university employee or a small business employee. Yeah. So there's, there's two different routes you can go. One is contracting. Contracting um, is quick and easy hire process. It's like, hey, I like your face. You're good at your job. Come join my team or I know you come join my team. You know, that type of thing. So it's easy. I can just hire. Now, the government hiring process, it, you have to go through a formal process. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to refer to, so it's a very complex hiring process. First, it, all jobs are on usajobs.gov. Okay, so you have to go on there, make a profile, upload your resume, and then go searching for your human performance job or whatever job it is. And once you find it, Make damn sure you read who can apply and make damn sure you read what to attach to that or how to apply. Okay, so who can apply and what you need to apply, like resume, CPR card. We've had somebody get through our process and put their CSCS on there but forgot their CPR card. Rejected. Sorry, we can't hire you. We had to stop the hiring process because they didn't upload that document. Then once you upload, then, you know, again, make sure you read the full job posting. You go through that job post and then you submit everything. Once that's submitted, then what comes to our organization would be your resume and maybe a cover letter. They don't pass us your CSCS because that's just expected that you have that and that's how you got through the process. Um, then you'll receive notification like saying, hey, you've been selected to move forward in the hiring process or, you know, to interview or, you know, that type of thing. So now I've got 50 resumes in front of me. I clean house. I'm down to my 10. So now 10 people receive an email saying, hey, you've moved forward in the process. Then I'll take those 10 and I'll probably narrow it down to my top three, interview those three, give you the job, say you're, you're an alternative pick one, they're an alternative pick two. Then in that process, you will um, essentially either try to negotiate, accept the position, or deny the position. If you deny, then we'll move to the next one. Okay, but you negotiated, everything's moving forward. Um, so then from there, you're looking at, with the Air Force, the way things are going for us, you won't get a job for three months. It's a three-month hiring process. Now if you negotiated a higher step, now we're looking at six months. It's not a fast hiring process. It's not on our organization. It's more on the big, the big hiring process, right? 
Um, and I've seen the army. They've said, called somebody on a, or notified somebody on a Monday on that Wednesday, they had their offer and they start here in a week or two. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a very complex, but I will say, keep an eye out on the NSCA's, uh, tactical special interest group page. Uh, keep an eye on that page because, uh, I'm getting, because we ask, get asked this question a lot. I'm hooking one of our HR people that actually knows the rules and regulations of the hiring process. And because I'm just saying kind of what I know with a small, you know, my, my 30 some people that I hired where the, this, this uh, person that I'm hooking them up with it has, you know, thousands of people over the years. Um, she's going to actually make a video for the NSCA to take them through the process. Um, nice. But yeah, that's. And then what was the second part of that? Uh, I forget, but yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, dude, and if we remember, we'll just do a part two. I mean, it's not like yeah. you're not close and you can't just pop up and yeah. we could talk about conspiracy theories, hiring him for, you know, TSAC, NSCA and all the jobs that are coming out. So yeah. keep your eyes peeled and your ears open and uh, we'll be definitely pushing some stuff out. So I think uh, anything else, Mr. McQuilkin? Nope. Thank you yeah, dude, for, for the you early guys. morning drive. And now yeah. now a couple hours of just shooting the shit. Yeah, Tyler, yeah. thanks for coming on Power Athlete Radio and uh, being a member of episode 455. 455. Nice one. So thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for tuning in to another episode of the Premier Podcast of Strength and Conditioning, where we not only melt faces, but expand your mind and talk about all things performance, strength, conditioning, conspiracies, movies, and really just lessons learned. Bye. 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 time for you to empower your performance. You're not going to find any social media for this government entity, but I'd encourage you to seek out some of the work of Tyler Christensen that he's done through TSAC, which is the Tactical Strength Conditioning, offered by the NSCA, and you can find that on the NSCA website. Until next time, bye! Bye.